0: You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of
1: the cockpit door.
2: WAPG, it's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 512.
0: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline
2: Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 5th of March, 2022. Today's episode, a drunk JetBlue pilot is pulled off his flight in Buffalo. A giant Russian freighter is reportedly destroyed in Ukraine. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 512 is ready for pushback.
3: Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all news station in the nation. 1010 wins in
0: New York City.
3: Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a major a major pilot at a legacy airline. No, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, <laughs> GA. And joining me today. From his studio
2: in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire.
3: Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways.
4: It's Captain Nick. Hi there, everybody. Uh, Great to be back on the show. But what a shame you two have disappeared across the Atlantic. I'm missing you. Well, we're missing you too. That was a lot of fun. You
0: too, yeah.
4: All right, and
3: also joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, director, it's Liz Piper.
5: Hi, everybody. Missing you too, Nick.
3: And also joining us today from his home studio in the Air Capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast. An engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho.
6: Hey, Captain Jeff. It's good to be back after taking a couple of weeks off here. Good to be back and chatting with you guys.
4: Awesome. you like your new... Uh, I do. Sound thing? <laughs> Wichita Lineman. All right. Yep. right. Sh- shouldn't that be Wichita Flying Man?
3: Well, okay. We'll have somebody out there who is very creative with audio. You can (laughs) come up with the the Wichita Flyman. Oh, I love that. That's a great idea, Nick. Flying man. Flying man. All right. Well, let's think about that. But while we're thinking about it, let's play the news sounder.
7: news.
3: All right. The first item is kind of a topical.
8: If you've
7: been
3: Oops. If you've been paying attention, <laughs> let's try that again. <laughs> uh, if I were paying attention, I wouldn't have hit the button yet. Uh, anyway, button. Uh, so it's uh, kind of a topical news item here because of the uh, goings on over there in Eastern Europe. We're all familiar with uh, the invasion of Ukraine and uh, somebody at a bar uh, recently asked me about this. He said, have you ever heard of the ghost of Kiev? And I said, the what? The what? <laughs> I did some research on it and uh, a little video here. Let's uh, listen. Take a listen.
8: If you've been it. paying attention over the last couple of days to the situation in Ukraine, you may have heard of the so-called ghost of Kiev. Rumors around this alleged Ukrainian pilot first emerged two days ago when fighting around Ukraine began, but the rumors have now been confirmed to be true. The Ghost of Kiev is the name given to a single Ukrainian fighter pilot flying a Ukrainian Air Force MiG 29 who has reportedly shot down two Russian Su 35s, one Russian Su 27, one Russian MiG 29, and two Russian Su 25s, all in the space of 30 hours, which is practically unheard of. To put into perspective just how insane these statistics are, an ace fighter pilot is defined by pilots pilot who has shot down five or more enemy combatants and this is the first time a European fighter pilot has achieved this since World War II. The MiG-29, which is ironically a Soviet-built fighter aircraft, first flew in 1977 and then was later introduced in 1982 and since then over 1,600 of the aircraft have been built but only a very finite To are in service with the Ukrainian Air Force. They operate a total of 37, however eight of these have been used for training in the past, but there's a potential possibility that those eight have now been transferred over to the main fighting force as fighting in Ukraine has progressed. Currently Algeria, Azerbaijan, Bangladesh, Belarus, Bulgaria, Chad, Cuba, Eritrea, India, Iran, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, Myanmar, North Korea, Peru, Poland, Russia, Serbia, Slovakia, Sudan, Syria, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan all have the MiG-29 in operation. But few countries have seen such great success with the aircraft, further outlining the skill of this particular pilot. On top of the MiG-29, the Ukrainians also have 12 Su-24s, 17 su 25s and 32 Su-27s at their disposal. Images of the elusive pilot and his aircraft have surfaced, and at this point, all we can do is wish him the best for what's to follow.
3: Now, um, there is some uh, arguing out there whether or not this has really been confirmed or not. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense claims that should the Downings be confirmed, the ghost of Kiev could be one of dozens of experienced pilots of military reserve who urgently returned to the armed forces of Ukraine after Russia invaded. In a tweet, it referred to the ghost of Kiev as the Air Avenger. However, in a claim by Ukrainian commander-in-chief um, Zaluzny, Zaluzny, he said he could only confirm a total of six Russian planes down on the first day of fighting in Ukraine, though there may have been more so it's interesting it's a it's something that uh is providing a lot of uh uh you know boosted morale uh for the citizens of ukraine uh whether it be true or not it's it's kind of a neat story what do you guys think
4: it, it is a neat story uh, and i think you're exactly right jeff the, the chances of this being one pilot are pretty remote quite honestly um but uh it does show that um the Ukrainian forces are having some success in the air. Uh, and uh, I think it's at this stage of the war, I think anything that would boost. Uh, the um, fighting forces and the people of re- Ukraine that boost their morale and uh, keep them looking skywards with hope uh, is fantastic. So I'm quite happy at this stage to say, yeah, there's uh, there's an ace uh, Ukraine pilot um, who's done a brilliant job. Uh, I'm sure it will actually turn out to be uh, a number of ace pilots, fantastic pilots. Um, out of interest, uh, you know, the commentators here, um, particularly uh, from uh, Rusi, the uh, I think it's the Royal United Services Institute. I'm not certain about that, but they're a, an organisation of military experts uh, who advise and f- provide commentary. Um, say that they're quite surprised that the Russian Air Force hasn't managed to achieve a superiority over Ukraine. Um, they Will have done probably during sh- short periods, uh, but to have absolute uh, superiority, um, they haven't been able to do that yet. The Ukrainian, Ukrainian aircraft, helicopters, and more importantly drones, have still been able to operate. Um, so this is an indication that um, you know things haven't gone all the Russians' way, uh, and um, you know I I pay tribute to the ukrainian the much smaller number of ukrainian aircraft and the size of their army for being such a determined a defender of their country uh, because at the moment uh, you know it's it must be so tough for them um a lot of the uh, people who are now filling the front line are of course uh, civilians who've been drafted in at very short notice to help defend their country, but they're doing it with enormous heart, and I have huge um, sympathy for them and pride in their efforts. I personally, this is all a personal feeling here, I'm really impressed and uh, delighted with it. And if there is a ghost of Kiev, and I I like saying... um, Kyiv the Ukrainian way and not Kiev the Russian way, because I think that's, again, a bit of a tribute to Ukraine um, in their language or in their accent. It's Kyiv. I think it's brilliant.
3: Well, it's interesting. I've been, you know, all of us have been watching a lot of the news coverage, uh, including interviews of Ukrainian citizens. And I've heard the Ukrainians even pronounce it both ways. So... Whatever, yeah. Kiev, Kiev, yeah. potato, potato, whatever. Um, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> yes,
4: we are. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah I. All the... boxes. I made a good comment there. I love the fact that he says NATO is now applying for Ukrainian membership. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, <laughs> something's wrong about that.
6: <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of side with Nick in thinking that uh, the likelihood of all the facts that story being true are, is probably pretty low but um you know it is kind of a good morale boost and you know if you poke around twitter especially in the first couple of days if you were poking around twitter and seeing some of the civilian uh some of the videos that civilians were posting and stuff uh there were some people getting after it in airplanes out there um you know in not great weather flying fast jets pretty close to the ground so that was kind of exciting to see um, and it, it's kind of intriguing to me, you know, cause these are basically unlike a like Western force fighting a Eastern block force where you have vastly different equipment, even though, uh, e- even if the level of performance of the equipment is near to each other, it's still pretty different equipment. This is, uh, this is two sides that are flying the same jets. So. That'll be Yeah, it is It is interesting, unfold. isn't it? The, yeah.
4: the, particularly the performance of this aircraft against the other types out there seems to be um, very good. Of um, course, it depends what weapons you're carrying and what mm-hmm. job you're doing, so uh, it's very hard. And I don't think we're going to find out a great deal, um, even after the end, because my personal feeling is that, um, it, you know, the Ukrainians... D- No matter how hard they work, uh, if Russia really want to, they'll flatten the place. They've got the weapons to do it, and they don't seem to care what the rest of the world thinks about them using uh, uh, all sorts of munitions that are currently um, banned by the UN, uh, you know, like cluster bombs. Um, They don't seem to be worried about using those against civilians, so they may well just bring in the really big stuff, uh, you know the fuel, air, explosives, and uh, God forbid, tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, if it all gets a bit tough for them, um, you know they. So I don't think we'll ever find out a great deal about the, the true facts of the defence, because the Russians are eventually going to, you know, take over, and then we won't hear much at all. yeah Lane
5: Lane's a believer
3: Lane, in the ghost. Lane uh, is a believer in the ghost of Kiev. Um, Maverick shot down three Megs in about 90 seconds. So anything's (laughs) possible.
4: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully he does the same again in the new movie. I still haven't seen it. No, May 27th. It's coming. Ah. Allegedly. There you go. (laughs) What, what, when, when?
6: I think May 27th is the latest date, but it's
4: been like two years. So, yeah. 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 I hope all it's right. not all a big letdown What eventually we get
5: that. From something inspiring to something not inspiring.
3: <laughs> okay, from something inspiring to something eh, not quite so. Uh, item two here. Drunk pilot pulled off a JetBlue flight at Buffalo Airport, police say. A pilot was removed from the JetBlue flight after police say he blew more than four times the legal limit for alcohol. The 52-year-old wow. old pilot, James Clifton, may face federal charges. That's the least of his worries, I think. Authorities say a TSA officer at Buffalo Niagara International Airport noticed the pilot was acting drunk, and the Niagara Frontier Transportation Authority removed him from the cockpit and gave him a breathalyzer before the plane departed for Florida. He rep- reportedly registered a .17, twice the legal limit for driving in the U.S., but four times the legal limit for pilots. Uh, Let's see. According to the police, the pilot said he was not drinking the morning of the flight, but he did have seven to eight drinks the night before. According to the police report, the flight's other pilot told the captain, I think, told cops Clifton missed the crew bus to the airport in the morning and had to take Uber while passing through security. He caught the attention of an officer and a TSA agent. And let's see Clifton's from Orlando, Florida. He was taken into c- custody and released to JetBlue Security, who notified federal authorities. Uh, the police report also states Clifton was carrying a gun licensed under a post 9-11 program that allows commercial pilots to arm themselves as a well that's, that's kind of a not quite accurate as part of the federal flight deck officer program administered by uh, the uh the U.S. government and a lot of things you have to go through. You can't just decide that you can go ahead and you know carry a gun. I can't just you know just show up for a trip can't with a just gun. Be
5: packing heat.
3: Well, I can, but it'll it'll be the last time I fly. I think <laughs> last time you'd probably see me, unless they allow yeah. podcasts in the
4: uh, in the prison. In prison, um, yeah. Yeah. So when they say, "Is that a gun in your pocket?" or are you just pleased to see me? I'm just That's pleased to see else. you. Something <laughs> else. Yeah. <laughs> It's a big
3: gun. Anyway, uh, so uh, so another um, article that uh, we were looking at also mentioned that the captain and the first officer were at a restaurant the night before. The captain, uh, after eating, left to go back to the hotel, and the first officer remained. And I guess that's when he had a, a few more drinks
0: indulged. and
3: indulged in the uh, in the alcohol thing. And uh, just so that everybody's aware, uh, we have the FAA rule says that you must stop drinking eight hours prior to um, showing up the next day for your next day's flying and or if you blow more than a 0.04 alcohol. So, you know, if you go out and um, really do it up like that um, Northwest pilot in Fargo, I believe. Uh, he had like 19 rum and Cokes, and uh, wow. but he stopped drinking more than eight hours prior to the next day's report.
4: However, <laughs> a lot of alcohol still in
6: his blood. Yeah. yeah, still didn't work out for yeah. him. Yeah, did not work No,
4: no there's not some magical thing that happens to your body when the sun comes up and you incidentally lose what you drank the night before. Um, and eight hours is merely a guide. You've got mm-hmm. a your body actually has to process all that alcohol. And if you've taken heaps on board, it'll take way more than eight hours to get back down to a safe level to drive, let alone fly, which is in the United States half that level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I – there's no, absolutely no excuse, no excuse whatsoever for this. If you think you can use your watch and work out whether you're sober or not, you have you could have used more than that. You know, there's an element of intelligence comes into this.
3: Yeah. Uh, looks like Main uh, Marin uh, is a little confused about the rules. He thought it was eight hours of continuous drinking before flying. No.
4: No, no. And no, I, no the rule... The rule actually is no drinking within 50 feet. 50 feet, of the that's area. the one that I that's always right. get to <laughs> <laughs> And no smoking within eight hours eight or hours. something. That's, that's the one. Yeah, that's yeah. the correct rule. Yeah.
3: Okay. We all know that. Good. I'm glad we have uh, worked that out. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, uh, Liz and I were talking about this last night, that sometimes you wonder in these instances whether or not the person was kind of hoping that maybe somebody would Kind of see that he was inebriated and like just you know, almost like, uh, you know, trying to get help from somebody just to. Kind of end the endless cycle of whatever this person's going through. I don't know, you know. I don't know what yeah. the psychology I mean, is p- here.
4: Pilots have personal problems just like everybody else in the world. Um, it's just that we have to try and forget them. And when we shoulder our level of responsibility going to work, uh, it's very hard to do that. And uh, sometimes you feel like you're the only person in the world with all this on your shoulders. So yeah. uh, it's important that. Uh, everybody in the industry realises there are avenues to get help and you already have to ask. You, and, and every pilot union is usually excellent at dealing with this sort of thing. And that, for me, would be my first port of call if I uh, felt I had to drink excessively to overcome something that's occurred in my life that is making me so down that I need to sort of Take this avenue of uh, uh, action. So, yeah, go to your union, go and have a word with them, and uh, um, they are on your side very much. So that's if you don't trust anybody else.
3: Right. There you go. There's your at least first PSA from <laughs> episode five one two.
6: Yeah, I was just going to mention, uh, Captain Jeff, that you know the Northwest flight. That guy wrote a book called Flying Drunk and i thought that was a pretty i read that maybe 10 years ago i thought that was a pretty interesting book and i i was a little on the fence about about that situation just because you know he he was able to come all the way back yeah. and continue flying um and he had mm-hmm. actually operated the airplane drunk you know yes. they got them after they landed the airplane so it it was um and it was a whole crew and it was a pretty horrible situation and so it kind of shows you Or at least it showed me in my youthful ignorance kind of the power of the power that a uh, well-constructed union can have. And when you have all of that support, not only the support to get the help and do the things that Captain Nick was talking about, but, you know, kind of when you get yourself in a pickle, if you've got um, a large body supporting you, you can probably accomplish a little bit more
4: there. Yeah. yeah, the union can help you in many ways. Uh, they can be the interface between you and your company, uh, and they can point you in the right direction to get the help you need. And and like I say, they're the, the people who are going to be most on your side uh, and helping you sort your life out, um, which can, can otherwise be a real nightmare. Yeah. Um,
3: Nev... Um, makes the uh, point that he has to drink heavily before he listens to <laughs> APG. And so Neb, you need to, you need to reach out uh, out there, get, get some help. All right. Or just Absolutely. stop watching. <laughs> and Grinner, uh, 10 hours and, and only a moderate amount defined as no more than five units of alcohol dispersed over the 14 hours preceding the 10 hours prior to report is his UK company's rule.
6: Yeah, that's that's another thing that's interesting about the FAA's rule, right? Is FAA has something similar to that. It's like 8 hours since consumption and lower than yep. 0.04. So not only could you drink very heavily 10 hours before and still be, you know, uh in violation of that regulation, but even if you had like an early flight and you had one beer with your dinner and you got up 6 or 7 hours later to go fly, extremely low likelihood I would think that you'd have any noticeable amount of alcohol in your system, but you're still violating that regulation.
4: Yeah.
3: I think um, Acme Airlines, uh, years before I was hired, actually had a time when it was a 24-hour rule. So basically, most domestic trips you know what as soon as you left on or no before tracking. you left on your trip you didn't drink on your trip although yeah. i well i will say that many <laughs> many of the people uh, said it was kind of funny they'd be down in the bar and they no- they'd they notice another crew member you know like sitting in another dark corner of the bar and they kind of look at each other like yeah i won't tell on you if you won't tell on me <laughs> anyway that well, was before
4: my like, time uh, Of course, Jeff. I used to like the attitude the Australian Air Force had when I was in it, which is obviously some time ago. Things have probably changed now. And uh, there used to be uh, a quiet office which no one ever used, and a breathalyzer sat in there. And if you came to work thinking, oh, a bit of a heavy night last night, you know, dining in night on a Thursday as they tended to, Friday morning flying, oh, I think I'll just go check myself out. You could actually go and blow the breathalyzer, see what your limit was. And uh, go, oh. and it was absolutely accepted that if you walked up on that first wave and just rubbed the China graph uh, board and got rid of your name, there would be no questions asked, which I thought was a great attitude to have. That is that is all right, well, let's
3: move on before I feel like I need to start drinking and it's it's still early here in uh, yeah, Eastern time in the United States uh, before ten o'clock in the morning. Um, so you've only had one? I've only had two or three, I think.
4: <laughs>
6: <laughs> Just i had zero. A cup,
3: I've had two cups of coffee. He, Actually, had, a- he
6: had his pre-show drink, and then he had the show opening. <laughs> had, you know, drink,
3: nobody but... really knows what I have here in this coffee cup. Of course not. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, we have several items in our news uh, notebook, so we'll try to kind of go through these as quickly as we can. Uh, this is... Uh, From Simon's Aviation Herald, uh, avherald.com, a Alkin Air Dornier DO228 registration, (laughs) Charlie Foxtrot Uniform Charlie November.
4: (laughs) (laughs) You want to make sure (laughs) you get that right. I am glad I, I
3: used the... Phonetic uh alphabet on that. I just noticed that by the way. I didn't notice that before. Uh performing a flight from Dawson City to Whitehorse in uh what what's Y T again? The Yukon, Yukon territory. territory. Uh, two crew was on approach to White Horse's runway one for right when the crew did not receive indication that the nose gear had extended. The crew performed a low approach, which confirmed the nose gear was not extended. The aircraft positioned for another approach to runway one four right and uh, nose gear up landing and landed without nose gear about 20 minutes after the low approach. Um, let's see. TSB of Canada reported the nose landing gear failed to extend. Okay, we got that. Uh, the aircraft performed a touch-and-go on the main landing gear. However, the nose landing gear still did not extend. No, that previous paragraph didn't say anything about a touch-and-go. They just said a low approach. And this paragraph says that they did a touch-and-go. And Now, I don't know about your company, uh, Nick, but my company's uh, SOP for uh, a situation when the nose gear doesn't – and maybe it depends on the fleet as well – is that uh, don't don't be trying to do something like – Doing a touch and go on the mains, hoping that that force will, you know, throw that uh, nose wheel out, because you could get yourself into some bad issues yeah. if you if you do that. Yeah, if you that, don't know exactly was what you're not,
4: doing, no, it was definitely not a procedure. Yeah. Uh, having said that, the only time that our company uh, had one on the Airbus, um, it was a main gear. Um, They had uh, the chief pilot was on a a radio speaking to the captain and had him doing a kind of a roller coaster, um, you know, attempting uh, to um, lower the gear under zero G, lower the gear under positive G, all these uh, efforts. uh, And in fact, none of them would have worked because there had been a structural failure of the gear inside the um, uh, undercarriage bay that had jammed it beyond anything that the crew could have done but they were they had him going up and down <laughs> all the passengers i can't know what they <laughs> were thinking yeah exactly right so uh, yeah they they and um he had come all the way back from hong kong and he didn't have a lot of spare fuel and after all this, you know, he was down to the fumes when he put it down in the end, which is actually a good thing, of course, because uh, you would mm-hmm. plan to land with very little fuel if you knew you had a main gear that wouldn't come down.
3: Yeah, that's all part of the exercise in the simulator, you know, when you have a gear issue and you have to, <laughs> you know, you, you just have to, okay, what do you want to, how much fuel do you want to burn? How much fuel do you want to have when you land and that kind of thing? So it's kind yeah. of all a intellectual yeah. exercise there. Go ahead, yeah, exactly Nick. I think right. I interrupted so it you. So went,
4: it went very well. They had the aircraft flying again in a in a few weeks, uh, and of course, a nose wheel is surprisingly benign. Uh, you know, it's. Um you know, the guy look, did obviously did a lovely job. It didn't look like he's done much damage. But it's really not hard, necessarily, landing the aircraft without a nose wheel. It's just that, you know, the aircraft goes a lot more nose down. And you keep your feet off the floor in case you <laughs> floor disappears. Yeah.
6: yeah. <laughs> Hold your feet I, up. I was joking about that last <laughs> <time>. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's one important thing to note here is, you know, the... The airplane that I have, uh, Bonanza, also has retractable landing gear and and gear issues, either pilots forgetting to put the gear down or having mechanical issues, misrigging, um, happens super frequently. And uh, I think the one thing that you got to keep in mind and maybe the general public doesn't always realize is uh, landing with the gear up either unintentionally or due to a mechanical is super insignificant, right? Like it's the airplane's always going to get fixed. Nobody's ever going to get hurt as long as you keep flying the airplane. But there have been multiple instances throughout history where a landing gear issue, which in the, you know, seems like a big deal when you're in the airplane in the moment, but in the grand scheme of things is not a big deal. Um, And then the pilots turn it into a big deal by uh, over-focusing on it and stopping and, you know, and stopping and not flying the airplane and, you know, there's an Eastern Airlines crash where a professional airline crew, yeah, basically crashed the airplane because they got um, over focused on a landing gear issue.
0: Yes. So.
3: It was. Um, oh shoot! I was hoping to have the sound effect, the Lockheed L ten eleven
4: in the in the Everglades. Yeah. That, that yeah. Yep. Uh, and, and it was only a, a bulb issue. It was a, it was it a light was, bulb. Yeah. It wasn't even a landing It was gear a light bulb. bulb. It, was, <laughs> right. it, was
6: a, it was a landing gear indicator light bulb
4: yep. in the panel. Yep. Yep. So. It was, a
2: Lockheed uh, Tristar.
4: <laughs> oh, very nice.
3: <laughs> All right. Um, so, there you have it. Kind of a a Fred fin- Flintstone landing. Thank you, Tim Van Ram. <laughs> they put their feet out to stop. That's In that case, it's a good thing when the... When you get the hole in the floor so you can yeah, help stop the airplane. that's
4: why big, heavy, hot boots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, moving on.
3: Uh, next one is uh, a Delta A319 in Mexico City on the 15th of February, 2022. This um, also from the Aviation Herald. They uh, rejected takeoff uh, due to an engine failure, and then they had a runway excursion. Uh, they were performing flight 605 from... Mexico City to Minneapolis with 101 people on board. They were accelerating for takeoff from runway 5 left when the crew rejected takeoff at about 100 knots over the ground due to the right engine, a CFM-56 failure. The aircraft veered to the right. The right main gear and the nose gear went beyond the runway edge. The aircraft came to a stop about 1,200 meters, 3,700 feet down the runway. Both right-hand main gear tires received damage. And uh, we're looking at in the video, the uh, picture of the main landing gear flattened tires. Uh, the flight was canceled. Huh. <laughs> That's something weird. Yeah. Uh, the aircraft is still on the ground in Mexico City on the 24th of February, nine days after the rejected takeoff. Uh, the Mexico's AIB reported the aircraft sustained substantial damage. The occurrence was rated an accident and is being investigated. Looks like, uh, weather wasn't too bad. Seven miles visibility, relatively light winds, uh, out of the South at 11 knots, 2000 foot, uh, broken clouds, uh, towering cumulus and, uh, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 21 C. So, uh, yeah it doesn't look like the weather was a factor at all here it just looks like to me the engine failure caused the airplane to swerve and uh, the crew wasn't able to keep it straight down the runway that seems to be a something happening lately um with with um frequency
4: yeah it it is the, uh, probably the most difficult part of your um, rejected takeoff is just when you get that big bang and the and the simulator you know, swings as the uh, one engine fails and the other is still on full power, and you've got to be smart on the rudders uh, there to keep the airplane straight. So if you if you even half a second late, uh, you know you can get right to the edge of the runway. And um, the the bit they're on actually is is not runway. Look, it's tarmac, but I, d- I think the runway is actually that smart looking edge that's right down the center of the aircraft but Mm -hmm. they're still on quite a firm surface but it looks pretty rough over there so i I have no doubt that that's what caused the tires to fail yeah it looks Um, like some drainage 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 coverage yeah exactly all a bit rough and rough and ready so that that's you're quite right and of course that hundred knot speed is uh, it's a difficult one because um you know the aircraft starting to think about going flying Uh, So the weight is not all there on the wheels, uh, including the nose wheel, where you're getting steering from. And what's more, the nose wheel steering that is currently being worked through your rudder pedals is starting to phase out as the effectiveness of your fin, um, the aerodynamic Um, effectiveness is starting to build so it's that transition point between using your nose wheel to steer or or your rudder to steer Uh, and it's an interesting um point in the takeoff you know you don't have a lot of rudder control you don't have a lot of nose wheel control and rick would probably tell us all about vmcg at this point um which is you know the the speed at which you have control over uh an engine failure on the ground um and while those speeds are you know are, are briefed and we know about them um, but uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it, if you're going to have an engine failure, it's a nasty, it's a nasty, uh, point to, uh, to have it. But, uh, they did an okay job. They, they stayed pretty close to the the runway. It was just bad luck. They probably hit some rough stuff that blew the tires.
3: Yep. All right. Well, that's that. Let's continue. Uh, this is an interesting one. A <laughs> uh, Republic Airlines, um, ERJ-175 uh, operated on behalf of American Airlines Registration 402 Yankee X-Ray uh, were performing flight American Flight 4541 from Providence, Rhode Island to Washington National in uh, D.C. Landed on Ronald Reagan Airport's Runway 19 at uh, 1847 local time. A loud noise occurred at touchdown. The aircraft rolled out with Out further incident and taxi to the apron, maintaining routine communication. The subsequent departure did not report any anomaly. I guess the subsequent departure on that runway after this flight landed. The FAA reported that the aircraft made a loud noise on the. Oh, they're yelling here. It's all in all caps. Aircraft (laughs) made a loud noise. (laughs) A loud noise on touchdown and post-flight inspection revealed a hole in the bottom of the aircraft. Washington, D.C. (laughs) <laughs> okay substantial damage and rate of the occurrence an accident so hmm there was a hole in the bottom of the aircraft hmm, wonder how that happened there's no uh there are no photos here uh at no. all uh so you know i'd love to see uh, no take report a look about any
4: FOD on the runway no nothing nothing found how do they no. know it happened on the touchdown uh, other I don't than know. somebody said the there was loud a noise, noise.
3: I guess is the only... Perhaps that was the
4: passenger screaming.
3: Could be, because his foot was
4: hanging out the hole. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> he wanted to be Fred Flintstone or, and yeah. captain
4: point. could have been trying to get out of the toilet, banging <laughs> on know. the door. So there's really not a lot
3: to this um, no. article. No. <laughs> so no. okay. I'm not sure what... uh what for follow-up? I mean, it just seems like maybe it was just a very firm touchdown, and maybe they hit part of the fuselage on the on the runway maybe uh toward the back end you know the tail like a tail strike yeah although yeah, this is not classified it. as a tail strike so that's about all we can tell you about this one
6: yeah Who knows?
4: interesting isn't
6: that? well and, and the fact that they you know rated the occurrence of accident versus an incident is kind of meaningful just cuz the FAA has pretty uh well-defined thresholds to go from an accident to an incident you know and right they talk about you know, multi-engine airplane, if you have a an engine failure or engine damage or um, skin damage, a lot of stuff that um, might uh, might be considered a an issue with an airplane. You know, the FAA will just call it an incident. So the fact that they call it an mm-hmm. accident would lead me to believe that the hole is pretty
3: big. Yeah, it usually has something to do with how much, you know, monetary uh, damage is or, you know, the damage is… You know, how expensive is it is it going to be to actually right? but it, yeah,
6: it. yeah, and that you know, it's they talk about like flight control issues, structural issues. um so I would, uh, yeah, like I said, seems interesting that it's an accident versus an incident,
3: yeah, so there's probably more to it than we're seeing here in this report. So we'll, we'll watch we'll, for updates. we'll watch for updates, Thank you, Liz. And uh, oh, let's go back to Ukraine. Uh, that's where we started the news this morning. Um, a unique Antonov AN 225 was reportedly destroyed in the fighting over in Ukraine. Uh, Ian Griffin from Calgary, Canada, sent this in and thought you'd find the article interesting. Sadly, this one of a kind plane was destroyed in the Ukraine Russia war that's ongoing at the moment. And of course, we all know uh, here at the uh, APG uh, a lot about this particular jet. Um, it's uh it's kind of a, an, a what, um, a, not an adaptation, but a, a um, evolution, I guess, of the Antonov An-124 uh, four-engine high-wing uh, transport aircraft. And this one, they added more wing to it, added a couple more engines. So it's a six-engine um, behemoth. And they created this thing to carry the uh, Soviet Union's uh, Baran, uh space shuttle that looks amazingly similar to the US uh space shuttle. Yeah, and, except the uh,
4: Russian one smiling. Oh yeah,
3: you're right. Oh cute little <laughs> eyes. Anyway, and then it they <laughs> they they uh modified the tail as well, um made it a twin tail. Now I think this one here, that looks like an AN one twenty four, isn't it? Uh, yeah. this picture
6: here. Standard more standard tail.
3: Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they, they went from the standard uh, uh, tail configuration, single vertical stabilizer to a twin vertical stabilizer uh, to help the in-flight uh, characteristics with the uh, Baran uh, mounted on top of the, of the um, Mira. Uh, Mira, I think, uh, M-Y-R-I-A uh, stands for the dream or inspiration I've seen in other places. Um, the biggest plane in the world was destroyed by Russian occupants on the uh, on an airfield near Kiev on uh, February 24 the ministry of uh, internal affairs of Ukraine confirmed that uh, the Russian military forces had attacked Antonov Hostomel airport and you know there were um, those of us who kind of keep track of this sort of thing in uh, on the social medias and the social media and in the news uh, saw kind of a back and forth at first. They thought, oh, oh, gosh, you know, this thing has been destroyed. And then there was a, a photo, a satellite photo, I think, of the tail end of the 225 sticking out of the hangar. And they were thinking, well, maybe maybe it's intact. And then they said, nope. Turns out that uh, it was definitely uh, destroyed, which is really a shame. Um, and. I've also read where um, Ukraine is saying that they're going to rebuild this thing, and it's going to cost about $3 billion and they're going to send the bill to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good luck on getting Very reimbursement out. on
4: that. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I don't think Russia's going to have a lot of spare cash available after all the sanctions that have been laid down upon them. Yeah. So uh, I don't know they're going to afford that. I, I, I love the pictures of the flight deck. Yeah. Um, I went to the original uh, link and saw those. Mm-hmm. Um, see all those six throttles. I mean, <laughs> you need big heads <laughs> to fly, fly <laughs> big that Big hands aeroplane. fly big jet. Exactly right, and and I love the fact that uh, you know the the flight deck seems so long. There's a huge corridor behind where the the pilots sit, and then I guess there's a couple of engineers or something that sit in this corridor they're about 10 feet by the windshield yeah, that's brilliant yeah, yeah absolutely vast anyway so that's
3: sad for us aviation geeks uh that we've lost this airplane
4: yeah yeah particularly one a one-of-a-kind you're right you can't replace that really easily yeah
6: and i think uh, you know the it seems like it's uh it's just a, at the end of the day it's just a piece of equipment but you know like we were talking about maybe the morale boost that the ghost of kiev was given, you know, the Ukrainian people. I think it's kind of, this is kind of the opposite, right? This is mm-hmm. something that, in the grand scheme of things, probably is not as impactful, uh, the loss of this airplane, but it was uh, such a, obviously such a meaningful piece of their aviation history that, um, you know, you see all the messages and everything on, on the Internet. And on oh, Twitter absolutely. The people who used to turn out was. just to
4: watch the damn thing land. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was incredible. Uh, yep. I, I mean,
6: guess. I remember it, it, all over the world, right? It, it even has come into Wichita a couple of times because of our industry here. And, and it, it's same thing. It's a spectacle.
3: Yeah. I think the thing had like uh, 150 tires or something on it. That's, That's what it looks like anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: I'm not sure how many there were, but I told you a see. a million times not to exaggerate. Oh, I know. Sorry, Liz. She said, I told you of a million times, Jeff, not to exaggerate. <laughs> <Yeah>. All right. Very <laughs> true. Um, next item, uh, from the drive recovery. Oh, you know, we talked about the, uh, F 35 crash on the, uh, USS, uh, Vinson, uh, Carl, Carl Vinson, Vinson. Yeah. uh, carrier and, uh, the leaked video of the crash of the F 35 and, uh, the fact that, uh, the people that leaked the, Video were apparently in big trouble, but uh, we were kind of concerned not kind of, we were very concerned that this airplane was still on the bottom of the ocean uh, and we're kind of concerned that somebody else, maybe China, would uh, somehow recover the airplane before we got a chance to do so. However, good news here. Uh, The U.S. Navy has retrieved the F-35C Joint Strike Fighter that was lost in a landing accident aboard the uh, USS Carl Vinson earlier this year. Uh, The service recovered the jet, bringing it up from a depth of around 12,400 feet. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. That's very, very deep. Whoa. (laughs) Uh,
4: I wonder how many atmospheres of pressure that is. uh, It must be amazing.
3: incredible. Uh, the aircraft was recovered yesterday by the U.S. 7th Fleet's Task Force 75, which oversees diving and salvage units and other expeditionary capabilities within its area of responsibility. And Naval Sea System Command's NAVC, Supervisor of Salvage and Diving, soup South the uh, combined team was on board the commercially owned diving support construction vessel, the DSCV, Picasso. That vessel had left Okinawa on February 23 to head to the crash site. Uh, According to USNI News, the location of the salvage operation may have been around 170 miles west of the Philippine island of Luzon, based on a notice to mariners that was issued by the Japan Coast Guard. The Navy, for its part, had not announced any details of the location. The recovery effort itself, the team For the recovery effort itself, the team employed a cable-controlled undersea recovery vehicle 21, or CURVE-21, a tethered, remotely operated vehicle normally used to survey the seabed. The CURVE-21 can also carry sonar and cameras to help locate objects of interest, and in this instance, it attached specialized rigging and lift lines to the jet. Uh, So they use this device to... Uh, attached the rigging and lift lines, lifted the airplane to the surface by the ship's crane lifting hook, and was taken on board the Picasso. Uh, the, a photo released by the 7th Fleet shows the aircraft apparently wrapped in a protective plastic coating for transport.
4: Yeah, and then they put a little ribbon on top. Oh,
3: that's cute. Nice. Yeah, so. Um,
4: 375 atmospheres. <laughs> oh my <Lord>. gosh. <laughs> that's that, that's a lot of pressure that's crushing. a yeah. lot of a lot of pressure so for sure a remarkable job to uh be able to work at that that depth and um get enough lines on it so they could could raise it done a brilliant job you know quite remarkable it
0: looks technology intact, like, yeah
4: it
3: looks does looks pretty intact uh yeah, uh, I-Hall Boxes is a, what, what, wait, there's something yeah. like Notices to Seamen? Uh, I think yeah, in this case, uh, I-Hall Boxes, did you not get the memo? It's Notices to Sea Missions. Yes, quite right. Yes. All right. Uh, moving on, um, let's uh, go to uh, the, what is that, I? I. I. Okay, I-I. Uh, but. I-I. I was hoping Come. that uh, Nick C would be able to uh, listen he has a, lo- he has a
0: little child care issue. <laughs> yeah,
3: child point. care issue, okay. Um, hmm, okay. Well, we're going to go, go, go ahead and J
5: and then go
3: back. Or? Uh, yeah, we could do J. That's a good idea, Liz. Uh, Kenya Airways won't transport lab monkeys after a Pennsylvania road crash. Wait. Kenya Airways airplane crashed on a Pennsylvania road? <gasps> This is from the Paddle Your Own Canoe uh, blog. Uh, Kenya Air- Airways won't renew a contract with a monkey breeding farm in... Um, I always have trouble pronouncing the name of this country. Mauritius? Uh, wait, wait. Mauritius.
4: Mauritius, yes. Mauritius.
3: There we go. I got pretty close. Mauritius. After What's 100 that? long-tailed... Um, I'm sorry. Okay. macaque. Thank you. Monkeys transported by the airline from the Indian Ocean Island to the United States were involved in a road crash in Pennsylvania. Four of the monkeys managed to escape from the cage after the truck transporting them from the New York uh, JFK to a quarantine facility in Florida crashed on Route 54 near I-80 in rural Pennsylvania. One monkey was quickly recovered, but three got loose and had to be tracked for days before being located and euthanized. An innocent woman who was in a car behind the crash went to help, but started feeling ill several days after coming into contact with the monkeys. She had gone to see what was in the crate, but ended up with an eyeful of monkey saliva and probably other things (laughs) and developed a cough and an infected eye. The woman is now on two types of antiviral medication to prevent against rabies. Uh, Those rabies injections, they're not pleasant. uh, I've heard that. Yeah. Um the people for the uh for people eating tasty animal no wait P- people for the ethical treatment <laughs> of animals sorry that's a different organization learned that uh <laughs> kenya airways had transported the monkeys to the united states and immediately fired off letters to the airline's chief executive and chair of the board as a con- con- conservationist i'm equally horrified even though i'm assured that every international guideline has been followed maybe um Chairman Michael Joseph told PETA in reply, we will not renew the contract that expires at the end of February. PETA claims that many lab test monkeys are transported into the U.S. from Asia and Africa with almost no oversight, and that officials are rarely told if a monkey develops signs of illness after completing the mandatory quarantine period. So that's a little off-the-beat kind of news story, but as uh, Liz likes to do, she likes to kind of connect aviation and I'm animals as much as possible totally. on our show exactly. so that's this week's installment that's, my little, yeah. that's Liz's so Nick's
5: thing back we can talk about the student pilot
3: all right let's uh go back to the previous item now that Nick's back with us everything okay Nick hmm okay <laughs> yep everything's fine sorry <laughs> just a little delayed response are you sure you're you're okay <laughs> yeah Yep. Okay, we're gonna play um this uh video uh that uh from um uh, let's see Vass aviation and um and then we're gonna talk about it. So here we go.
5: Nope. sorry the, the <laughs> monkeys escaped again.
3: Oh yeah, the monkey is causing problems. okay, here we go. Vass aviation, real ATC. Or aviation communications. Oh, wait. Hang on. Before I continue here, I need to warn uh, people: if you're listening to the show right. in your car yeah. live, with uh, or in your house Hello with people. young children within earshot, uh, there are a couple of expletives in here that I have not been able to remove for the live show. So, uh, just just some warning for you.
0: Listener uh, discretion
5: is advised. Yeah.
3: Listener discretion advised. Thank you, Liz. Okay, here we go. Back to the video.
1: Tower, Cherokee 5208, Whiskey, student solo. Left base for runway 1. Cherokee 5208, Whiskey, suspended tower, runway 1, take land. Go to land runway 1, zero whiskey. Uh, left downwind for runway 2A, traffic on a four-mile, three-and-a-half-mile final for runway 2A to G4. Do you want me to go around, zero 08 Whiskey? Zero 08 Whiskey, negative. Uh, turn right, entering a left downwind for runway 28. Downwind 28, 08 Whiskey. Number yeah. 7, Alpha, you can disregard the speed restriction of speed traffic in the left downwind to follow UA uh, uh, Cherokee. Copy, 7, Alpha. Samana Tower, Sport Cruise, 163 Through Charlie, right base runway 28. 163 There Charlie, Samana Tower, continue to it. Continue 28, 2 Air Charles. 08 Whiskey, traffic heading to your left to follow is the gulf stream through 600 feet. You haven't in sight? I haven't in sight. 08 Whiskey. 08 Whiskey, follow that traffic runway 28 cleared by 2A. Runway 28 cleared to land following traffic, 08 Whiskey. So whiskey, disregard the base turns teeny downwind, traffic to follow now is the Cherokee as yes, on a 4 mile final. Discontinuing base, continuing downwind, 08 Whiskey keeps getting disked. 7-3 Alpha, parking. Self Shelf 7-3 Alpha, left turn Charlie 1, ground point 910. Left Charlie 1, ground point 9. 7 Alright, zero whiskey. Make, uh, make right 360 now. i call you downwind turn. <laughs> say again, zero whiskey. Zero whiskey. Make right 360 I'll call you down turn. Over 7-3 Alpha, runway two eight clear to land. Hold short of runway 1 for departing traffic. Two eight clear to land. We'll hold short of 1. 8-2-7 Alpha. Can I 85 five, Bravo, Zulu, Savannah Tower, fly runway heading runway one, quick to take off traffic, on a mile and a half follow from runway two-eight to the Cherokee, will land and hold short of the intersection. Roger, understand. runway one, clear to Charlie, if I didn't tell you, runway two-eight, clear to land, traffic will be in the left downwind to follow you a Cherokee. Alright, clear to land two-eight, keep an eye out for the traffic, three-sir, Charlie. Number zero eight, whiskey coming out of this 360, re-enter the downwind, report entry. Entering
3: the download now, zero 08 Whiskey. Okay,
1: yeah, he did his little circle. He's on the download. Enter a base for 2-8. Uh, Turning base for 2-8, eight, 08 Whiskey. Three, 5 Bravo Zulu, contact, departure.
2: 1-0, we'll departure,
1: we'll see you later, 8-5, Bravo Zulu. 7-1, 3, three sir, Charlie, uh... Did you already get a landing clearance for 2-8? I was just about to ask, I believe I did. Alright, this is Charlie, you're a clue land, runway 2-8. 0-Land 2-8, 3-0 Charlie. 7-3-Alpha, where you parked? 6-3-Alpha. 7-3-Alpha, Roger, left on Bravo ground, point there. Left on Bravo, over to ground, thank you, h 6 You're welcome. Uh, mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Cherokee 5208, Whiskey, uh, I have a complete an- uh, engine failure. Cherokee 5208, Whiskey, Roger, um, you got Savannah in sight? Yeah, I'm not going to make it. Cherokee uh, 52... Tricky 5208, Whiskey, Roger. I'm painting the river right off of here at 12 o'clock in about a half mile. Yeah, I can put it down in the water if I have to. Tricky5208, Whiskey, Roger. Um, Do you see any clear landing spaces out there? Um, It looks like a lot of tall grass. Um... (laughs) Tricky5208, Whiskey, Roger. I still got you loud and clear. Uh,
3: (laughs) We all got you loud and clear. (laughs) Stay with me and... um,
1: I'm at less than 500. I'm gonna to have to put it down in the water, I think. Trk 9508 whiskey Rogers.
4: Loud clear. Still have you? This just uh, like a reaction test.
1: <laughs> who's that? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, nine, tri- nine five triple one. Yeah, that's uh. Nine five triple one. Are you on? Uh, you just came off one, right? Air from here, clear up for, uh, cut to take two Turkey, 95111, runway one at Alpha 4. Fly the runway ahead and clear for takeoff.
0: Runway one, Alpha 4, clear takeoff
1: They're going to go over there and see five, if they one, can. Take uh, a Right downwind for two eight and extend downwind. I've got him about just three miles. He's about a three mile downwind. I turn, uh... Right down on now, and uh, continuing towards river, triple one and uh, November 162, Lima, Mike, yep. That's our Cessna 162, Lima, Mike. Uh, switching over to you, we're looking for that aircraft in the water though, if you want us to. All right, Cessna 162, Lima, Mike, yeah, I'm showing it right off of your right side, probably about your one o'clock, approaching your three o'clock, and uh, probably less than a quarter mile. Okay, yep, we got him. We're right, we're right over top of him. All right, uh, November 162, Lima, Mike, it's not um, you, you kind of want to hang out there? I've got his instructor pilot on his way out. Okay, looks like they're upside down, Some, but they're standing up, uh, they're standing on the wing, so. I'm sorry, not upside down, right side up, standing on the wing. Right side up, standing on the wing, Roger. Right and uh, five triple one, you copy? Not triple one, we do copy. We're just going to circle right here around them so you know where we are, right? Traffic is a uh, Cessna 162. After 12 o'clock, he's orbiting over the uh, aircraft. All right, I got him on uh, four flight. Roger. I need you, I need you to get him visually for me. Looking right now. And uh, to Lima Mike. And November two Lima Mike. If you can't, just uh, there is traffic. If you're orbiting to that left-hand turn, out of that left-hand turn, you're going to see a Cherokee at 1,200 foot off your left wing, and three miles east- eastbound. He's uh, looking for uh, his his student pilot. Okay, we're keeping a lookout for that traffic as well. We've uh we've got the, the down airplane in sight. Savannah, Savannah is he on the Savannah? No, on one of the kind of the side creeks, uh not in the Savannah, not the shipping channel. So it's on one of the side. Right. And uh Cherokee Triple One that traffic's heading to your right, he's eastbound now. It's uh one thousand. Yeah, Cherokee hey, Triple One, we got the two the mic in sight. Right, thank you. And uh Two Lima, I'm sorry, uh, Cherokee Nine Triple One. That traffic uh, that you're looking for should be off your left wing now. Uh, actually, let me ask uh, Two Lima Mike, are you tracking them or are you just orbiting? Yeah, the down tra- the down airplane is just off our left wing. I'm just kind of staying just circling around. So, do you-, you want me to not do that? Anymore? Cherokee Nine Five Triple One, do you have uh, do you have an inside as well? Uh, I do not have the down aircraft inside. I have Lima Mike inside. Alright, uh, yeah, I'm going to let you two coordinate real quick, um, if y'all want to talk to each other. So, two Lima Mike I've got triple one on frequency. If you want to help point them out, maybe you can give them some visual references over there.
0: Uh, Derek, the
5: down plane is like, it's right kind of off our left wing if you see us. It's it flipped wide in the water, but it's kind of just in the middle.
1: Derek, where are you? Do you see me? you see us? I am uh, two miles at your 7th uh, mile.
4: It looks
5: like the student might be outside of the plane. Yeah.
1: Tower 8233 Fox, visual, runway 1. Tower eight two three zero Fox, drive tower runway 1, clear to land. Clear to land, runway 1, 3-0 Fox. Derek, if you see me, I'm going to be flying right over top of them in like one minute. And you guys are right at the same altitude. You, you guys maintain visual separation from each other for November 9 triple one. Yeah. Same thing for you. November he 2, doesn't 1. want another I
4: accident. It. <laughs> there. okay. Yeah, there's okay. about now. three of yeah. you down there. Uh, hey,
1: from Mike, uh, I got the Go ahead. All right, All right, November uh one six two Mike. Go ahead and uh, start making your way back here. Please enter a, let's do a right down one for runway 1. All right. Right down one for 1, 2-in-the-mic. Station maintain VFR and um, let me know. Well, I'll let you know once uh, I figure out what's happened. Uh, triple One will maintain VFR. We're going to try and coordinate uh, emergency services from the air. Roger. Right. I know. I know we are too. I just uh, haven't been given any word about what's who's on their way out yet. Roger right,
3: Okay. The sole pilot on board was rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. Kudos to all involved. So nice job, especially the coordination uh, by the air traffic controller. Um, had a lot, of, a lot of things he was juggling there. And, uh, you know, one of the most important things was keeping airplanes apart so they did not have more than one uh, um, crashed airplane or emergency
4: uh, there. So, so quick question. Uh, does that aircraft have fixed undercarriage? I th-
3: yeah, a th- Cherokee think it does. does. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I've I've seen a few ditchings of light aircraft, and uh, it pre- seems pretty easy to flip onto your back. So, this student pilot seems to have done a really nice job. It does seem that way. Yeah. What, what would you say about that? You've flown
3: Cherokees, haven't you, Nick?
6: I've so not. You- uh, oh, okay. But I, I learned to fly in a beach sundowner, which is almost the same airplane. Okay. Um, yeah. And I agree. I, you know, one, one of the things that I noticed was the picture in the pictures, the airplane is airplane, at least in the pictures that we saw never looked like it sunk all the way. So I don't know if, you know, they mentioned he was in like a side channel. So I don't know if, um, it just wasn't very deep water there. Yeah. I think or I, whatever, I, but,
3: I think I read somewhere that <laughs> said it was like six feet deep or something.
6: Not very deep. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but, uh, Captain Nick is right. It is pretty easy with a, a nose gear up in the front to, uh, flip the airplane over. Uh, In addition to that, there's a lot of other things you got to think about, right? Like being able to get out of the airplane quickly. A lot of times when you have an impact to the airframe, that's not a normal like landing type impact when you're landing off field or something. um, In airplanes with kind of conformal doors, um, you know, like the Bonanzas have a door that kind of wraps around the fuselage a little bit. I don't remember if the Cherokee's door is more flat or not, but a lot of times those shaped doors can get uh, if the airplane if the airframe gets tweaked you can't get the door open so Mm. a lot of times one of the um one of the items on like an emergency checklist if you're going to land off field is to open the door and have the door cracked open so that when you get that impact on the airframe the door doesn't get wedged into the sill um but yeah this is uh all good things happen here water makes me nervous water and fire both make me nervous in little airplanes so I'm glad to see uh, you at it the well. same
4: time. I don't worry at all. It's only when I get one or the other that I'm,
6: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Oh, I, but, I- all boxes makes a good point. At least you didn't get sucked out of the aircraft. Well, that's
6: true. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Uh, you know, one other thing I was going to mention is it's uh, so like another 20, hindsight is 2020 20 thing, right? But he was at the airport and just the circumstances and the traffic and everything, they had to fly him away from the airport, right? And uh, that's a, you know, I, I don't, that's not no fault of anybody necessarily, but...
3: Yeah, they had no uh, idea that the engine was going to fail at that point. But right? I, I, yeah. I thought the same thing. You know, if, the, if it hadn't been for him continually um, <laughs> being delayed and, you know, uh, being sequenced with all the other inbound traffic, I, I understand why the tower did it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like he wants to make sure everybody's out of the way so this guy can concentrate on doing his touch and go or whatever. But,
6: uh
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
3: Uh bad timing. <laughs>
6: timing is everything. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I <laughs> – you know, when I was learning to fly, it was just drilled into me that, like, if you're at the airport, you should always be able to make the runway. And so, mm. it, it was always this, like, energy management. There was an energy management aspect of it, right? Of, And I was flying small, light airplanes, so it was pretty easy, reasonable glide ratios and stuff. But, you know, like, as you start flying away from the airport – so, I learned to fly at an uncontrolled airport. So, I always flew pretty close to the runway. And then, when I moved out to California and moved the airplane to a towered airport – you know, stuff like this would happen where I'd be flying patterns and then you'd have a regional jet coming in. So they'd say, oh, extend your downwind. And, you know, they meant extend it like three or four miles. And I was like, ah, I start getting airsick sick when I can't see the runway. Mm. And, uh, you know, and so you climb a little bit and you, you try to <clears throat> maintain that energy management, you know, where you at least have a chance if something happens. And that's one thing that I kind of thought when I started flying bigger airplanes, the C-47, especially because of the because of the way you have to manage those engines, it's a lot harder to, you can't just come down. And, you know, I was uh, I was fighting energy management kind of in the inverse because I'd start flying away from the runway and I'd get high and I'd get a little more energy and you'd turn back in. And and so uh, it, it, that was one of those mindset things that I kind of had to overcome, flying mm. a little airplane, always thinking, okay, the engine's going to die. How am I going to be able to get back to the runway to managing energy in a multi-engine airplane where you don't have to worry about that? Mm-hmm. Very
3: interesting. Uh, we have another uh, item in our news that we're going to hold over for the next show uh, that has a lot to do with uh, energy management as well. And it was a it was a positive, uh, happy ending outcome uh, for the uh, pilot involved, and uh, it was another uh, engine loss of engine power situation. And uh, so we'll, uh, as I said, we'll save that Teaser. for Teaser. next week's show. So make sure you're here while we. Uh, watch the video and talk about it. And uh, with that, I think it's uh, time now for us to do the Getting to Know Us segment. That time of the show where we get to know each other. And Liz is singing in the background <laughs> Get it to like us, get it to hope you like us too. All right. Um, so, um, uh, nothing been happening at all with me no. or Liz <laughs> yeah. or, or you, Nick, yeah. uh, Captain Nick, but let's start with, let's start with Nick C, see what's been going on with, with you.
6: Uh, yeah. So I haven't been on a couple of weeks. I was, I traveled, I had to do some traveling for work. Uh, for me, unfortunately that entails a bunch of small airplane, not, well, not small, uh, GA airplane but small airliner travel
0: mm-hmm.
6: so because of the the place that I live and then the place that I go to work um, a lot of times I think this trip I flew a Embraer 175 from Wichita to Denver and then a CRJ 200 from Denver to slow so which is like a two hour 40 minute flight and it's uh yeah. feels like it's bordering on a war crime to make people sit in a CRJ 200 for <laughs> three, three hours um, <laughs> and it's I, you know, I, I just so everybody understands what slow is. Oh, San Luis Obispo, California. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, uh, that's the town. It's a coastal town in yeah, California that, that like I travel to flight. for work mm-hmm. and used to live. Um, but man, I was sitting there, and of course, you know, the CRJ 200 has the tiny little um, bins in the top. You can't can't take any sort of normal shaped bag into the airplane because it won't fit in the bin. And they make all these announcements in the boarding area saying, if you have any, if you have wheeled, you know, wheeled bags or anything, you got to check them at the gate. And then, of course, we start loading the airplane, and there's some person that is sitting in the second to last road that goes all the way back. And then, shockingly, his wheeled roll on bag won't fit in the bin. So then it becomes his (laughs) hold. Situation where he's trying to get back to the front of the airplane, and there's 20 people in the aisle. And
3: the flight it, attendants are man. usually pretty good at seeing, you know, catching that yeah. before they get on the airplane. Like, nah, that's not going to work.
6: Yeah, yeah. So it's all this all results in a very stressful experience for me. So I always chuckle with people like Doctor Steph who love uh, airline travel because I I uh, I feel like I get the other end of the spectrum there. <laughs> But anyway, got out to San Luis Obispo. Uh, I was out there for a week doing some work and uh, got to get one flight in on the C-47, so that was fun. Oh, nice. We were moving it for its winter maintenance. We moved it to a different airport to do a few things to it, so I got one very short uh, flight in on that, and then uh, I from there I went down to Phoenix for a week to do some more uh, stuff for work down in Phoenix, and uh, while I was down there I actually got to meet up with Rick and who significant other? Kaya, <laughs> Miami Rick, Captain Rick. Oh yeah, that guy. So while while you guys <laughs> yeah. were we were jealous of you guys, your guys' uh big get together, so we decided to have a APG West oh. get together there. That was a tremendous amount of fun. I I had never met Rick in person. My only interactions with him had been the few times I'd been on the show with him. And obviously, you know, meeting someone else with uh like interests, it's a uh, very easy to have great conversations. Yep, exactly. Uh, but
3: have, you know what? I've, uh, I'm sure you found this uh, as well, that the the guy that you see on the podcast seems like a really nice guy, but you meet him in person. And
6: wow, what a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, uh, of course.
0: <laughs> no, he was great. And, and uh, anywhere, I met
6: Kaya, his significant other, who also has a... Uh, an awesome aviation background and she actually grew up in the same area in california that i go to for work so we had i lived out there for 10 years so i i almost had more to talk about with her than i did with rick but uh and she went to an amazing university educational institution down there in alabama (laughs) yeah (laughs) she did go to auburn uh Mm -hmm. university uh so that was great i had a lot of fun with them then from there i actually got to get on a real airliner for the first time on this trip and fly from phoenix to houston in a a three hundred and twenty, um, and uh, met up with my family in Houston, and uh, for a for a wedding, and then drove home from there. So, lots of airline flying for me, a little bit of C forty seven flying, and then interspersed with all that, I got my airplane all back together. I shared some of the exploits of trying to get it flying. Um, I had a push to talk issue that I had a intermittent hot push to talk on my airplane, and so I'd troubleshoot it and get everything working and I pull it out of the, pull it out of the hangar to go flying and get the airplane started and turn everything on. And it would be hot mic. So I'd get frustrated, shut everything down, go to troubleshoot it and everything would be fine. Um, I finally got that all sorted out and then went to go fly it Thursday night. And I had a configuration issue with the audio panel. So. More audio issues. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm right there on the threshold of being ready to go. And so I was, you know, Captain Nick made a comment about, Uh, flying with a ferry set, which I was unfamiliar Uh, with, but using my powers of deduction, I assume you meant a handheld radio, which is what we call it over here. Um,
4: yeah, it, it, there are some radios which are pretty beefy that you can uh, specifically design for aircraft ferrying. When you can bring them out of the factory and the avionics might not be fitted, Okay, you're just delivering to, to another place. Uh, when I started aviation, uh, that's what we did a bit of. And uh, so the radio would be, you know, just strapped into the back and you'd have a…
6: Oh, so over here, fire. it's pretty common to actually have a handheld radio, like a small… All right. Transceiver radio. That's what, so like the Luscombe that my dad has that I fly a lot, doesn't have an electrical system. And so that's what we use to operate well, the airplane I'm completely. guessing
4: these old sets were probably valve. We're going back a bit now. <laughs> so, sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I so I, I decided
6: this was Thursday night and I decided, all right, I'm tired of waiting. I'm just going to get the handheld and I'm going to go fly the airplane just to fly the airplane. And on Friday morning, it's- I wake up and I look at the TAF. And it says, uh, you know, winds of twenty to thirty knots, and then wind shear alert of fifty knots at two thousand feet. And I thought, you know, I've touched. I've touched every little part of this airplane, and just in case I need to deal with anything, I probably don't want to no. be dealing with a ton of weather as well. So, yeah. still
3: yeah. holding out on that high winds <laughs> in, in Kansas. That's, that's I know crazy.
6: shocking. Never I know heard
4: of that. <laughs> that's a hell of a wind shear, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
6: especially in a little airplane, I would think. I try to avoid them, so I don't really know what it would actually do, but it doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't sound like it'd be fun to fly in that kind
3: of weather. A lot of turbulence involved. I'm glad you uh, worked Mm -hmm. out the hot mic issue and the other audio issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll have to to let us know how it goes when you actually get that thing back up in the air. Yep.
4: Yeah, a little video would be nice. Mm -hmm. Sure. That would be nice, yeah.
3: Anything else? Um, We missed you uh, on the show, so I'm glad you're back. And uh, talking about um, experiences as a passenger aboard an airplane, uh, I got a chance to experience that myself. And I realized that I do not like flying on airplanes unless (laughs) I'm in the cockpit of an airplane. Flying the airplane? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was, uh, so I guess we we can transition into the, the big, Mm -hmm. the big, uh, journey over to uh, London. Would that be all right, Liz? You think? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about it. Okay. So, uh, the last, was it last weekend? All right. Yeah. Last weekend, Mm -hmm. last Saturday, a week ago, uh, was the big 400 uh, episode celebration. Armando's having to think about it. Was it 400 Armando? (laughs) <laughs> Matt, what do you think? We're we're yeah. looking at some yeah. uh, some overlays now <laughs> on the uh, video of the uh, PTUK four hundred uh, episode celebration. Uh, they uh, held this at the uh, Brooklands Museum. Uh, I guess you'd say what southwest of London, Nick? Um, uh, and- yeah, and
4: uh, not not very far. It's uh, just inside the M twenty five. So yeah, very much on the edge of London. Okay. So
3: uh, yeah, um, we we've been uh, you know those of uh, many of many of the folks that watch our and listen to our show also are subscribers of the Plain Talking UK podcast and they knew all about this big celebration they were having and we've been planning on you know or I've been planning on attending for quite some time and uh, so as we got a little bit closer um, I was thinking maybe Liz might. Enjoy going as well, and so, uh, because of my personal situation, my travel dependence um, travel benefits kind of situation has changed a bit. so I went ahead and designated Liz as a travel companion uh, and I well first, I asked her if if I can get this to work, would you be able to go? Over to uh, London with me uh, for the you know PTUK celebration, and so she quickly determined that she could find uh, some lodging for her two animals, and um, she said, "Yeah, let's do this." So she flew down from Toronto to Atlanta, and then I joined her in Atlanta, and then we had the wonderful passenger experience uh, going from London to—I mean, I'm sorry—from Atlanta to London. Um, you know, I don't want to draw this thing out too long, but uh, it was looking, you know, several weeks ahead and then several days ahead of time that uh, Liz and I were going to be able to sit up uh, front in uh, the uh, Acme One seating, <laughs> the uh, uh, the business class uh, section of the uh, airplane, and get wined and dined and lie flat seat and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, about two days before the flight, uh, I was looking at the standby list and... Darn it somebody senior to me hired in 1986 not 88 uh two of them uh put themselves on the list yeah they must really be old and uh i thought <laughs> oh darn it and in, and the number of seats available kept shrinking as we got closer and closer to the uh the but those date.
4: seats aren't very big to start with oh, i know the seats, i'm
3: sorry the number of seats uh were oh, okay. was decreasing <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. I just said it wrong. And uh, so, yeah, so we uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, at least we're going to be able to get into this new section. I think they call it uh premium select. It's kind of like select. a like a domestic first class kind of seat. And, uh, you know, the food choices and that kind of thing aren't as great as being up there in the uh, in the Acme one section. Uh, but uh, and then as we were waiting at the gate. Oh, by the way, when we got there. Um, we were sitting there and I'm looking out the window going, Hmm, it's getting kind of close to the time where we start boarding and I still don't see an airplane out here. So they finally Uh-oh. made an announcement and said, yeah, instead of the 6:30 departure time, it's now going to be eight o'clock, uh, because the airplane that they were going to use, I guess that had just arrived from London, uh, had some kind of a mechanical issue. So they had to substitute it with another, 767 uh, 400. So we got a kind of got a late start. And then we were uh, starting the boarding process, and then I noticed that Liz got one of those uh, Acme One seats, and I went, "That's great! She gets to sit up front and enjoy all that luxury." And then I'll be in the Premium Select, and I'll be fine. And uh, so we boarded, and she was up there. And what, what was your seat, uh, Liz? One C or one something? A. Like that? One A? One A? No, wait a minute. No, no, no one that's-, one C. <laughs> that's that's Neville's seat. You can't. Yeah, you can't it be a Neville seat. seat. It couldn't be one A. One seat. Yeah, it was one C. And uh, I noticed, uh, like, the row behind me over to the right near the window, the, there was a discussion this guy was having with his seatmate, and he was kind of complaining. He was a million miler and and had used a certificate to uh, upgrade to the, uh, the business class, and uh, somehow that somebody had dropped the ball or something there, and I'm hearing all this. And then he's talking with a gate agent, and they're trying to work all this out, and I'm thinking, hmm, I'm thinking – that this is not going to bode well for Miss Liz up there in One C, and sure enough, uh, the guy went up to, and talked to the agents, came back, and he said, F- "Please follow me, sir." And so uh, the guy that was supposed to be in One C to begin with uh, ended up uh, swapping with uh, Liz, and so she was back in the slumming it in the premium select section. No problem. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't bad at all. And so we uh, flew over to London and were picked up by. Uh, captain nick's lovely wife jilly at the airport and uh she carted us over to their wonderful house in uh, liss in hampshire and uh, we got a chance to to visit and to eat some um just amazing food uh, the those cold in fact I, i'm i'm not going to talk about the food right now because i think my stomach is going to start growling <laughs> and it's going to be kind of embarrassing oh well, there's but, plenty
4: of whiskey as well
3: yeah, we had some whiskey uh, after the evening uh, dinner, and uh, yeah, it was it, it. We had a great time, and then the next day, uh, we headed over to uh, the Brooklyn's Museum and uh, took part in the uh, celebration. Nick was showing some overlays from from that uh, that experience, and there's a, a great picture that we're showing now on the video of. The big group of people, probably most everybody there, maybe some people didn't make the photo, but it's a pretty, not there, pretty, pretty big group of folks that um, are uh, standing in front of Concord at the Brooklyn's Museum. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic. It was a little chilly out there <laughs> in the wind. That um, was freezing. Anyway, uh, so some more photos uh, we're showing here. Uh, Steph made it. Um, just barely. Uh, I, I think she made it in Saturday morning right before the uh, show started and then uh, spent the night and then was back out again early the next morning. You know, Steph, she's crazy. And Yeah, uh, she
4: was there for barely 23 hours. Mm. Yeah, a long way to go for <laughs> 23
3: hours. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So we didn't get to really see much or talk much with Steph because she wasn't there for very long. But uh, APG was present to support the fine folks at the PTUK. There's a picture of Dr. Steph and Captain Jeff and Owen and Captain, S- Al. Captain Al in the background. Stuart. There's Brian and Mila and Stuart and, uh, and many, many more Um yeah, great, great group of folks. As I said, we share, our our two shows share a lot of the same audience. And Jenny and uh, Rome, Jenny Rome was there. Hundreds. Yeah, one of our Coffee Fund contributors. And there's uh, Brian, Passenger Brian and Captain Al. And uh, uh, let's see, there's Mila. Myla. Uh, Myla. Uh, yes, Myla. Um, yeah. well, I don't know why I, I, when I said that name, I'm thinking oh, that doesn't sound right. That is right, Mila and Mark, um, her uh, new boyfriend, new love interest. And there's oh look, Mizzouz, uh was there as Isn't well.
5: It, Jeff, do you want to do you want to read number fourteen?
3: Just yeah, why don't Mizzouz I do that, uh, Liz? Uh, we have some feedback. Um, from uh, we re- received some feedback from Mazoots uh after this meetup in London at the Brooklands Museum, and I'm trying to find that right here. That's in our feedback, li- feedback lineup, and I'm scrolling down, and here it is you um, said, uh, "Dear all, just wanted to say how fantastic it was to be able to meet you all in person today. It was a real honor. As I said, it, I felt very starstruck seeing such a distinguished group face to face. He uh, knows very well. Well, he must be talking. <laughs> must be talking about the PTUK crew. Or oh, something. of
4: course, yes, they, they have proper shirts."
3: Yes. Uh, in, <laughs> he says, enjoy your time in the UK. Have a safe trip back. Hope to be able to meet again in the future. Very best wishes. So that was – he sent that the the day of the PTUK mm-hmm. um, episode celebration, 400-episode celebration. Anyway, uh, great time. Micah uh, in our chat room was there as well. I don't know why we didn't see him in any of those photos, but uh, he, he, was, was, he was. He, oh, in he was, a, he was oh, okay. in a couple of the early ones. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention, I guess. Um yeah. So yeah, it was a Here good time.
5: There he
0: is.
3: Okay, there he is. There's Liz and Steph and Micah. Anyway, uh, we could talk forever about the great time that we had in London, and uh, that we we took the celebration over from the Brooklyn's Museum over to the Brooklyn's Hotel, uh, where many of us had rooms for the night. And the party continued and in late into the evening, and then we uh, many of us met the next morning for a full English-slash-other-country breakfast.
4: Actually, <laughs> Jeff, now would be a good time to play that audio from the after party. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let me uh, find that.
5: I can do some more overlays well.
4: Okay. The same, uh, ...the same
5: overlays again.
3: Okay, Liz said she can do this, some overlays while we play this audio.
4: Getting to know you, APG... I'm going to uh, let a few of the celebrities here uh, introduce themselves. And I am Brian Coleman, contributing editor to Airplane Geeks. And I'd like to
3: promote my new project, which is is thejourneyisthereward.org. And Micah and I are documenting uh, my journey to get to 3 million mile lifetime 1K status with United Airlines.
4: That's going to be some journey.
3: Yeah, so I hope everyone uh, goes to the website and has a listen. Just have
7: to remember it's .org, O-R-G, not .com, because .com was taken. It's not being used, but it was taken. So I was very, very sad about that.
4: Someone obviously thinks they can make money out of it. Yep, that's exactly it. Thanks, Brian. Myla, say something nice for the APG. I love you. Uh, That's very nice. Anything else? (laughs) No. No? Okay, Pip has got something nice he's going to say. I'm fond of you all. Okay, that's very nice. Uh, say something for... Th- Hello. That was... You might at least introduce yourself. John Warner. Well done, John. Say something nice. I'd like another beer. Wouldn't we all? St- uh, say something nice. Hi, Nick. He, he's just choked on a sausage roll. <laughs> right, where can I go next? Say something nice. Hello. Hi, Nick. Nice to see you. All right, that'll do, I suppose. I think it was Matt. Say something nice. Hello. Hello's been done. You just thrust a mic <laughs> in my in my, in yeah. my face. Well, I'm standing here next to a, a gorgeous young lady. Oh, thanks. Far younger than me. <laughs> this is Armando's other half.
1: Oh, what? Oh, oh shoot. Oh, Armando. Who's oh, Armando? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble. I need another beer.
4: <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we'll go and find Armando see what he says. Armando, your wife just said she needs another beer.
8: I'm right on that.
4: Good. And uh, something for the APG listeners? Uh, APG listeners are our listeners. Our listeners are APG listeners. So thank you for
6: the crossover. Thank you for the mentorship to all of the APG team, crew, listeners, all that. I just can't wait to come out of this cocoon and meet everybody.
2: He's good, isn't he? He's good. Micah. Hello. Well, I didn't hear what you said because I was talking to beautiful Maddie
4: yeah absolutely and someone's already said hello you have to think of something else okay
2: (laughs) well it's been a marvelous day it's so great to see you i can't believe that it's been so long because i think we haven't seen each other for three years some people here i haven't seen for five years and i am so delighted to be able to visit with apg in person excellent that'll do very nicely uh this is john i don't know if john can talk (laughs)
4: <laughs> if John could talk, yeah, he can't say say something nice or hello,
8: hello, hello. Uh, you, I can't. I Owen will talk. Sorry. Owen will talk. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny.
4: Hello. Is that it?
5: Uh, hello to APG and everybody there. Amazing. All my friends over the ocean. <laughs> Brilliant.
4: Brilliant. Can I start to? Uh, that'll do. Uh, did Al say something? I don't think he did. Al. Fantastic. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening to it and watching it. Well, there you go. That sounds brilliant. Uh, I think I've done most people you will recognize. Right. Leave you to it. Uh I'm back to Jeff in the studio.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for the throw, Nick. Very well done. Uh, it was As I said, you could tell, we were all having a very good time. And no, there was no drinking at all going on there just to be clear, but you're muted, Nick.
4: Uh, Yeah, I know. I've I've just discovered. I'm (laughs) absolutely right. I I had my hands full of microphones, so I couldn't drink anyway. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Nev says, oh, Neville's Nev is in our live audience. Thanks to all of the APG crew for making such a massive effort to come over. It was delightful to see everyone. It was delightful to see Nev as well. Was he the one that said he had to get a beer? Probably, yep. Yeah, I don't actually, know. Yeah, most that was, of
4: that yeah. time I was doing that. Uh, Nev was behind a camera interviewing other people. <laughs> yeah, he was a very <laughs> busy it really man. It was a, a well-organized event, thoroughly mm-hmm. uh, good fun. There as he is well, in the background
5: so. of that picture.
4: Yep, there's a Nev
3: in the background uh, recording somebody. Um, yeah, so
4: with his anyway. hairy muff.
3: All right, thank you, Liz. Um, so yeah, we had a great time at the oh. There goes my trackpad that I just, I'm throwing here on the sofa. Um, we had a great time there. And um, let's see, we, uh, Nick and Liz and I left the hotel after the uh, wonderful breakfast the next morning. And we, of course, we said our goodbyes to several of the folks that were also having breakfast. And we went up to Heathrow and Liz got one of her, I don't know, 10.
4: Um, <laughs> COVID tests. I've never seen one of those um probes, this get you know, it's actually come out the back of your head. But. Yeah, it was like it, it didn't break the but skin, you, 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 could actually, there, yeah, so you, you could actually you see
3: it yeah. poking through. Yeah, and uh, then we went uh back to Shea Anderson uh for some more uh great meals and uh visiting, and then the next uh morning you we took
5: your COVID test.
3: Oh I took my covid test after we oh we recorded a show <laughs> we recorded yeah, we uh five <laughs> yeah. eleven I think what <laughs> else did we do on Sunday? Oh, that's yeah. right. we recorded episode five eleven from the conservatory studio yeah, there were a lot of things going on there and uh then after that we uh, had another wonderful meal and then uh went to bed and got up uh, early the next morning, well, not too early and uh, uh we're, we're taken back to Heathrow. Uh, Where uh, Liz, (laughs) you want to join us, Liz, and tell us about the wonderful time that we had at Heathrow uh, Airport the Monday morning uh, (laughs) before the flight. (laughs)
5: So um, Canada was just changing our returning testing requirements just the day I was landing. So that's why I had two tests, because I honestly wasn't quite sure of the timing. And the last thing I wanted to do was arrive in Toronto and have them say, oh, you don't have the right test. Anyway, so that's (laughs) why we went up on Sunday and had the drive-through PCR test, which of course takes a while to get that result. But I consulted with our resident doctor, Steph, on Saturday night, and she said, yeah, you know what, to be on the safe side, you better go and have a rapid test um, at Heathrow just before you leave on Monday morning. So, you know, I get online, and it looks really, really convenient. They have a, a facility, as they call it, in the forecourt of Terminal 3, where we are departing from. So, we all consulted and made an appointment. Our Flight was leaving at 10.15, and so we decided I'd make an appointment for 8.10 to have the test. So Nick was very efficient, got us there in lots of time, and we said our goodbyes to Nick. And then got out of the car, and we could see the testing facility, and oh my God, I could tell already the queue was looking all disorganized and kind of crazy. Anyway, won't go into a whole bunch of detail, but it was a chaotic, ridiculous, slow, stressful Nick, uh, Nick, Jeff was fantastic and took my bag away and was able to check in himself. And we kept texting back and forth. And I, I I I was very close to just walking away from the test and just like, this is it. But anyway, we finally got taken, rushed over, got to the check-in. Of course, everything seemed massively slow at this point because we're pressed for time, right? Um, Because you're supposed to check in, uh, no less than an hour before the flight, and we're looking at the clock. And anyway, got checked in. It was, it was like uh,
3: one hour and five minutes, one hour and four minutes, one hour and three oh, minutes. And I'm looking, and the person that was still in front of us was still doing something. And we we're yak. like, ah, like you have to check in within 60 minutes. Okay. Go and oh, we've made it right anyway. under the wire. Yeah.
5: We got checked in, ran upstairs. Well, I don't run much these days. But anyway, got upstairs, going through the security, and of course Jeff has all his electronics with him, and I had a couple of things that they didn't like the look of too, so that took a while to get through there. Oh, anyway, we we made it. We just made it to the gate. So, but that testing thing was just Horrendous. You, when you were Luckily at the testing, both
3: yeah. Once when you were at the testing facility, Liz, I was already looking at the next day's flight, um, yeah. the you know the yeah. next morning's flight back to Atlanta because I'm thinking I don't think this is going to work. But looks like there are lots of seats tomorrow morning. We'll just have to figure out where we're going to stay. But you know what, Jeff? Tonight, we,
5: I would have needed another test. But anyway, we oh we need it, So Ugh, whatever. That's right. Anyway, we got on and we got we both got all to one on the flight home. So. I'll just take this opportunity before I I step out again. But thank you, Jeff, for everything. I mean, you really enabled my trip over there, and I really appreciate it. So oh, thanks. It was a nothing.
3: Lot. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad that you were able to to join me. It was kind of fun having a. Travel partner, it was, so it
5: was fun. Anyway, got to Atlanta. Jeff and I parted company. I took an Air Canada ERJ one seven five that was just a little crap can. Um, <laughs> to uh, Air Canada, may I say, not, jelt- not uh, Acme was still Air Canada. Anyway, arrived in Toronto about uh, just a little crap after can. eight p.m. Luckily, it was very quick through the immigration customs thing. Didn't need another test. Thank God. And uh, staggered in about twenty-one hours after getting up at Nick's place. Ooh. But it
4: was a great trip. You gotta love long haul. No,
5: yeah, you I don't love it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
5: thanks again, Jeff and Nick and sure. Jilly. It was just fantastic. So
4: uh, I'll pass that on. You're very welcome. Crap
3: can sounds like maybe a show title.
4: <laughs> oh yes, yes quite right <laughs> too. The
3: old crap can flight back to Canada anyway uh, yeah it was it was a great time it was whirlwind uh, not a lot of time not quite as whirlwind as uh, dr. Steph's quick trip over there but uh, still we, we packed in a lot of uh, a lot of visiting and a lot of eating and a lot of recording of shows and uh, meeting uh, great people so um, very memorable had a great time so um, yes we uh, did eye uh, boxes is asking if we got a chance to drive in Nick's Audi and we did, uh, or at least I did. I don't know if, uh, Liz got a chance to, but I've been, I've been in that bucket of bolts before.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That neck thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, we had to make, uh, two journeys up to Brooklyn's to, uh, dump, uh, our guests there. So Jeff and I went in one and Jillian, um, Liz went in the other. So, uh, I'm not quite sure why we had to do that. I've forgotten now, but we I think had that uh,
3: Liz wasn't feeling 100 percent that morning, so she just needed to take oh, a little bit right. of extra yep. time. She,
4: she had a bit more of a relaxed morning, and I uh, think she made it up though. Honestly,
3: uh, I think she just didn't want to spend any more time with us than necessary, <laughs> Nick. So, and I think You're that guilty. she's yes, yes, she's more fond of uh, Jilly than she is the two of us. Who can blame her? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Liz. I turned off the clean feed, but I got it back on. Uh, I, turned, <laughs> I turned it off because you were when you were here in the right. in Streamyard. It was I was hearing like double voices, and like, ah. yes.
5: and that's, that's hell. I understand.
3: Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, so. Yeah, that's, so that's what we did okay, we're last about week the
5: last show there Jeff let's talk about the cover art
3: okay uh, before I move to the cover art Liz oh, okay. I'd like to just mention quickly that up here uh, up here in the mountains of Georgia uh, got a uh, got a text from uh, Mike Carroll's dispatcher Mike and he said, hey we're up here uh, the fam and I are up here uh, kind of not too far from where you're hauling up. And these You want to get together? And I said, Yeah, sure. So we went over to the little kitschy, kitschy town of Helen, Georgia. It kind of, it kind of uh, purports to be some kind of a yeah German village in the North Georgia mountains. And they really do it up, and it's a, like, it's a tourist trap. But it was a lot of fun, and we had some, uh, some good German cuisine uh, for lunch at uh, beer? the Heidelberg. Beer? Uh, yeah, I had had a beer um at the heidelberg uh, restaurant i think it was called and had some schnitzel and some other goodies and uh, it, was, it was great to see mike and his wife and family and, uh, while they were up here and it was their last basically their last day i think they were heading back down to the uh, the metroplex of atlanta uh, the next morning so just wanted to do a shout out w- great to see you mike and naomi and your kids uh great time Walked around the town a little bit and took in some of the little shops and stuff. Yeah, anyway, so there's that. And uh, let's talk about last week's um, cover art. Uh, the title of the show, Be Combobulator. And uh, Nick, uh, Captain Nick did a wonderful job of illustrating that. A lot of detail there in that little, I guess, steam gauge uh, with the APG logo there and apg uh
4: well that's an airspeed indicator because if you remember one of the stories was a bee that crawled inside a pedo tube okay (laughs) so that's it's an asi and then behind it's the combobulator uh, because you became incredibly discombobulated at the end of the show (laughs) i think that was uh, but i did i
3: managed to combobulate though before the end of
4: the show you did uh using the combobulator
3: yes or the recombobulator or the bee combobulator. Yeah, or in this the case. bee combobulator. Yes, exactly right. Yeah.
4: I love it. Uh, and the show number is in there, so uh, it wasn't a hard one this week.
0: My uh, fault.
3: Where is uh, it? Obviously, I didn't, it was. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't look for it to be honest. Um, where, where but is so. it, Liz? Let Nick say? So. No, okay, where is it, Nick?
4: So. Uh, it's a uh, follow the s indicator needle downwards, and you're looking mm-hmm. for five eleven. Yeah. Oh, there right, right it is, right the, there.
3: It's right right the, the, the indicator is right, pointing right, right to it. Arrow.
4: yeah, Absolutely. And, of course, near the center, uh, just beneath the uh, wings of uh, Acme, uh, there's hmm. an APG. I did see that. Yeah, All very right. clever.
3: Good. Very nice. Uh, anyway, great artwork. Thanks, Nick. As usual. As usual. All right. Brilliant. And uh, let's see, we played the uh, audio from... The four hundred, the four hundred, and we talked to Nick C. and Liz. Uh, I think that we're finished with the getting to know us segment.
5: Coffee fun
3: time. Time for the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more
5: coffee?
3: No I love coffee. I love tea. I love the A.P.G. community. Coffee and tea,
0: and the java and me.
3: A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. That's Jeff Smith. Did I mention him? Uh, He's the one singing this wonderful APG Java Jive. And the reason why he's singing it is because we're going to talk about how you can join the Coffee Fun Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club. Your choice. Uh, All the same thing. It's your way of contributing to the show. And a couple different ways to do that. One is called the Coffee... (laughs) <laughs> what is it called? Coffee fun classic method. Since the last episode, we have Alistair Kerr, Randy Ackerman, Felicity Pine. I think this, that's the first time that I've seen that name. And Mazoots Kareem. We see his name all the time. Thank you very much, all of you, for your very generous contributions to our show. And the other way to support the show is to become a patron of the show. And we don't have any new patrons since the last episode. But again, uh, you can learn more about how you can join the Coffee Fund uh, cadre by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will, too. Sorry about that. And we'll be glad that this segment's over. (laughs) (laughs) Guess what? It's time for some feedback.
5: Captain, incoming message.
3: Right, the first piece of feedback is from Rob. He says, "Wow, new hotel. I did, I didn't expect to see anything like this so soon. (laughs) Might be a cool hotel to try to stay in." And he has uh, given us a link to a businesstraveler.com article. Uh, this is Rob uh, Legal in Providence, Rhode Island. And it is uh, from the business retired A380 to be upcycled into a hotel. And there you go. We see a picture of that uh, 380. And uh, yeah, looks like it'd make a, a very nice hotel. Foradorek. Uh, Deleuze, a former Airbus engineer, plans to upcycle a retired A380 into a Toulouse hotel. A 380 hotel would be located at the new Meet Convention and Exhibition Center, that's M E E T T, uh, not far from the Toulouse airport with a scheduled opening date of 2024. Accommodation provided within the A380 will suit business and leisure customers alike. The plan is for 31 rooms comprised of standard and deluxe rooms plus two suites. There will also be – it's amazing, isn't it, that that airplane could actually handle 31 standard and deluxe rooms and two suites?
4: That's amazing. (laughs) It's
3: good. Also, a restaurant on site. Uh, This news was originally broken by France's Le Depeche. Uh, One of the suites would be located in and around the A380's cockpit, while the other would be at the rear of the aircraft, located on two floors connected by the original staircase. Both suites will surely appeal to aviation enthusiasts, as well as those travelers looking for a new experience. More details on the planned A380 hotel can be seen here. (laughs) Click this, Jeff. I don't know what that uh, takes me to. In other areas of the world, we see other types having been converted into hotels or restaurants of one sort or another. But this is the first proposal to create an an A380 hotel. Uh, Emirates recently announced plans to upcycle its first retired A380 into a bespoke furniture and memorabilia store, maybe. (laughs) I think there's a word missing in that article. Anyway. So I thought that was uh, really interesting. Thank you, Rob, for sending the any comments by my co-hosts. Yeah, I
4: guess it would need to be quite close to the airfield boundary because I'm not quite sure how you get a complete A380 onto a public road <laughs> to get it to its site. So, yeah, it's a great idea. And I think, um, you know, aviators would love to... Uh, Go and uh, stay in an A380. It is mm-hmm. it is an iconic aircraft after all. It is.
3: All right. Uh, Robert, different Robert, not Rob Legal, but Robert Tucker, who used to live just south of the Big Chicken, but now is living in Tucker, Georgia. Uh, this curious retro Toronto photo popped up online yesterday, which led to some investigation about the uh, Air Canada Concorde. Uh, this was an interesting story to me, and this is from C H uh, C A H S dot C-A. Liz, is that a like Canada Canadian Historical Air- Society?
5: Aircraft has hor- Canadian Aircraft Historical Society.
3: Canadian Aircraft Historical Society. Thank you. Um, And we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check out this thing. But uh, there's a picture of the, uh, I think the Boeing version or proposed SST, uh, the 2707 with Air Canada livery. Um, And the article goes into talking about the fact that, uh, well, a former airline manager, Clayton Glenn, recalls a Canadian footnote. To a technology caught in the crosswind of societal change and the article goes into uh air canada looking at adding a supersonic jet to their fleet or several actually and um you know the thought process uh of uh you know whether we go with the boeing sst or the concord etc and uh, i don't know how would you did you guys get a chance to read the article Oh, Um, I did. It's
4: it's quite long and evolved. It is. Uh, How would you sum it up, Nick? Nick? It's it's a nice historical look at the problems that various countries had in uh, establishing a a project to build supersonic transports. Um, And the airlines that were interested in it, um, really, I mean, it's rehashing old history. I've done a plain tale about uh, the fight to get um, the various supersonic transports in, and a lot of the politics uh, this covers of whether the countries will allow supersonic flight over their country. Uh, and um, yeah, the. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haul boxes, well, we,
3: yes. We were yeah, looking it, at a comment from our live audience. <laughs> uh, I haul yeah, boxes uh, says Boeing's
4: supersonic crap can. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, they uh, they never really um, got it past the drawing board. Uh, They did have sort of cardboard mock up or something, uh, but no, and they did cost them a lot of money. Um, So yeah, uh, and and it's an interesting battle to uh, that ultimately ended up with uh, Russia versus Europe uh, in trying to get the first one, and Russia, of course. Forced their manufacturers to fly the first supersonic transport, but it was never a success. It was way too um, quickly developed. Whereas Concorde, of course, we know, turned out to be a delightful airplane. Just sad, it never really fulfilled its full potential.
3: I was looking at you know the the case for Air Canada's use of the uh, Concorde, and uh, there's a graph here talking about talking about uh, seat mile cost per seat mile and uh don't go there yeah it's uh (laughs) and then also the fact that a lot many of the routes that they were going to use it on were not overland overland i mean most of them were overland which you know meant that they would have been restricted to subsonic speeds Well, no
4: one lives in canada so why can't you go supersonic overland (laughs) ah good point
3: Liz is objecting in the background. Uh, Nick, <laughs> she might have to, uh, have a word with you after we finish our
6: recording today. Um, I'm not Report available him for Steph. comment. I'm, I'm sorry. Him
5: to Steph.
6: Yeah, I I remember the first time I walked through the Concord in in Duxford, and the the thing that just struck me was how the incredibly engine. tiny, <laughs> incredibly tiny, and uncomfortable it must have been to traveling because it was so small. Oh, you know, yes. and you think about well, it how was, much fuel yeah. it is required to fly that fast. But then there's also like the other aspect of it, which is they made that fuselage so tiny to get the performance that they needed. You know, now not only do you have to pay a ton of money to fly on it, but it's not really a, it's not really a glamorous experience. You know, it's not like getting a big, huge seat with all the accoutrement in a, in a modern airliner. It's like a tiny little seat. You can't hardly stand up.
4: Yep. that's true expensive. but you're only in it for three hours and during that time you're fed so much champagne and caviar you don't care anymore <laughs> so if you've yeah. been fed
3: champagne and caviar in your flight in that crap can from uh colorado to uh, san luis obispo yeah. it would have been <laughs> yeah. almost like the same experience
4: yeah <laughs> so yeah, that's right? true. <laughs> yeah absolutely
3: supersonic so. crap can okay the show title uh, continues to evolve um yeah. Anyway, I thought it was a very good article. Uh, take a look at it. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, and keeping us in Canada or Canadia, if you prefer, uh, this is from Stewart up in uh, Ontario. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Edmonton. Edmonton. He's in uh, yeah Alberta. Um, came across a post this morning from former astronaut commander Chris Hadfield on Facebook Kind of a nice feel good story in a world of never ending doom and gloom, or so it seems. Loving the show. And again, that's Stuart and Edmonton. And uh, this uh, couple of different um, links. uh, One from the, what is that journal? I I can't make it out.
5: Sarnia. Sarnia?
3: Sarnia. The Sarnia Journal. Okay. What is Sarnia?
5: That's a place. Oh, it's a place. It's a place. Okay. North of Detroit. North of of
3: Detroit on the east side of the river. Okay. And also on Facebook. And uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield uh, writes on the 25th of February, a solo pilot at 15. Congratulations, Ethan. You're making your dreams take flight. Be sure and thank your mom. Yeah. It's always good to support good manners. Uh, The article here uh, talks about this uh, 15-year-old, though too young to drive, this teen is already flying. Uh, His name is Ethan Nauta, uh, 15 years old, on his first solo flight over Sarnia last month at the Huron Flight Center. And uh, let's see, Ethan has been watching the skies since he was little. I've always been a fanatic for airplanes. Yeah, we can all kind of uh, understand that, said the 15-year-old, recalling a plastic toy plane he carried around for years. My earliest memory is from when I was really, really young. (laughs) He's still really, really young. Um, I was (laughs) with my grandma in the car and I would just look up at every plane I saw. I remember doing the same thing. His fascination with the science of flight grew. And when he was 12, begged his mom to attend a summer camp at the Huron Flight Center. I told him, you get me all the info, and I'll take you there. Uh, he was totally hooked. Officials at the flight center took note of the boy's keen interest and suggested lessons, and it kind of went from there. She said, "His mom, uh, Ethan logged flight hours alongside chief instructor Jason Brent, and when he turned the minimum age of fourteen, was ready to qualify for a solo flight license, but he had to wait for Transport Canada to provide medical and to provide a medical, and just as the pandemic arrived." There were some extra steps that they had to take to assure that I could be a pilot because I have autism spectrum disorder, said uh, Ethan, whose medical clearance application was submitted in March of 2020. I was confident he would, and so were all the people who supported him, his mom said. But there was that trepidation with him, wondering if he'd be able to take that first flight. After waiting nearly two years, his certification was approved, and last month he took off and landed a plane by himself. It was fairly surreal," uh, he said. Who took one quick loop around the Sarnia Chris Hadfield Airport before landing, where he was greeted by the Flight Center team in a good old-fashioned water soaking. Oh, that must have been fun in Canada in <laughs> yeah, January or February.
6: February. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you God. could see the yeah. snow behind him. So,
3: oh uh, wow, man, miserable. Uh, He plans to work towards his recreational license and his bigger dreams of attending the Royal Military College of Canada. Last summer, he met Colonel Chris Hadfield when he visited the flight center, but he was a little too starstruck to mention his own achievements. I don't know, he said modestly. He meets so many people in a day, and there was a huge lineup. Um, His mom said he was speechless, who recently moved from Sarnia to Petroleum. Okay, well, anyway. Uh, Some added extraneous information in this article. I I don't know why they include some of this stuff, but I guess it's interesting to some people. Anyway, um, his mom said, it's just amazing to be able to watch him fly the aircraft with the level of responsibility. It's so surreal, she said. When he turns 16 and with a recreational license, he'll be able to bring a passenger along. I'll have to drive him to the airport, she said, but he can fly his date out to Thunder Bay for lunch. Aw, Cessna wow. 172 SP snowplow, <laughs> very funny <laughs> aisle boxes. That's what the SP stands for. I didn't realize that. Right. How do the where do they put the plow on the front of a Cessna 172? I don't, it doesn't look like you'd be with a propeller, <laughs> like a
5: snowblower than
3: a blower Okay, gotcha. <sighs> anyway, congratulations, it's time now. Ethan. Yeah, I think so too, Liz. Uh, she's saying it might be time for this week's installment of the old pilots' plane tails. And this week's title, ooh, another great installment of the RAF Form 414. This is Volume 14. And here we go. Take it away, old
4: pilot. The old pilot's playing tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 14. It's logbook time again, and you may recall that I was as freshly a minted A1QFI as there could be, and I had just left the training world to return to the front line on my old squadron, the Fighting Cocks. I had been in Wales for over four years, and in that time the faces I knew on 43 Squadron had almost all gone, and I was joining a unit of strangers.' Not to say that I didn't feel welcome, it was just a bit weird. My occasional visits during major exercises had been enough to keep me current on the Phantom, so I didn't need to do a refresher course at the Operational Conversion Unit, but the squadron had cobbled together a few trips to tick enough boxes just to cover their asses or donkeys. I can never tell the difference. A month after arriving, I was back in the queue shed. It took a couple of weeks before the Soviet Air Force found out and they immediately rushed around the northern approaches en masse to say hello. After we had launched both the Q1 and Q2 Phantoms, the squadron were told to get Q3 airborne as soon as possible. Unlike Q1 and 2 which were on 10 minutes readiness, the Q3 aircraft needed to be generated and airborne within one hour. It was quite possible to arm and fit tanks to an aircraft within that time, but as a precaution, a fully armed Q3 aircraft sat just beside the sheds, just in case. With Steve, we were nominally the Q3 crew. I threw my kit on, jumped in, and off we went. Joining up with a tanker, we headed north hunting bear. Before long, we'd sidled up beside a pair of bare deltas with their big maritime surveillance radar in a blister on the belly. They'd been at medium level, around 20,000 feet, and we watched them droning around for a while until Steve spotted something on the radar down low. The contacts he found were barely breaking out of MBC, main beam clutter, on the pulse Doppler display, which put us close to their beam. The antenna angle wasn't big, so they were probably 30 or 40 miles away, but we had enough photos of our current bears, so we gave chase. MBC was that part of the radar return that contains reflections from the sea or the earth below. It was electronically notched out, but if our targets moved on to a 90-degree intercept, they would be hidden in that notch and would disappear. We needed to get out in front of them, into their forward quarter, so that we could approach from an angle near head-on, say a 120 or 150-degree intercept. This needed a little judicious use of burner, but we were in a delta fit, the precise code was Delta 440, that is Delta for three tanks, 440 for four sidewinders, four sky flash and no gun, since the centreline tank was taking up that station. I could take the wing tanks up to 550 knots and Mach 1.6 full, or 750 knots and Mach 1.6 empty, but the centre line limit was 600 knots and 1.8, so I was currently limited to around 550 knots, but that was enough for the job. We hooked around the front of the targets and descended down over the North Sea. Steve was doing a great job with the intercept, and soon I was wheeling in behind a pair of Mod C badgers, scooting along at 100 feet or so over the ways. Well, well, we thought. While the bears were upstairs keeping us occupied, these guys were downstairs trying to get past us. We made ourselves known to them and then popped up to find the tanker who'd been trailing along behind. We knew he wasn't too far away since we were making use of the air-to-air function built into our Tacan Navgear, very much like a VOR DME. The Tacan was a military equivalent but we could use the distance measuring side of it to give us a range to another aircraft if we both used the same mode and frequency. During the next week or so, we were involved with a joint maritime exercise, which was probably why there was so much Soviet activity. But they were long missions. In only four flights, I was airborne for 14 hours 20 minutes. Still good times were just ahead. We were off to Deci. For those of you who know what a Catch-22 situation is, I applaud you, for at least you've watched the movie, if not read the book. I mention this because many of the events that inspired the book happened at the Deci Mamano Air Base in 1944, It's situated on the island of Sardinia, to the southwest of the leg of Italy, about halfway down. During World War II, it served first the Italia Noreggia Aeronautica, and then the United States Army 12th Air Force 320th Bombardment Group, flying B-26 Marauders. In the 50s, the Royal Canadian Air Force used it as a weapons training installation, and then in the 60s it became a NATO ACMI range. For those of you who listen to the tales about Red Flag, you won't need any introduction to the air combat manoeuvring instrumentation ranges, but here's a quick explanation anyway. Air combat is a complex series of hard manoeuvring in three dimensions and difficult to keep track of. The debrief was often won by the most senior or loud-mouthed pilot shouting down the rest. ACMI took all the guesswork out of it. Each participating aircraft carries a pod. It looks a bit like a wingless missile, which transmits aircraft data, height, speed, altitude, G, angle of attack, weapon, system information, etc., to a series of receivers that surround the range. The data is processed by very powerful computers which provide a real-time, three-dimensional view of the range and all the players fighting within it. Missile shots are simulated and take into account the defensive manoeuvres to judge the probability of kill. In 1985, when I first participated, I felt it was like watching myself in a Star Wars movie. Quite magic. This was going to be my first Detchy, and I was eager to play, but first we had to get down there. I was given the lead of a four-ship of our Phantoms to take down, and we had a tanker RV to top up our tanks just north of France, but once that was achieved, we'd be on our own. The navigation wasn't hard, but our sister squadron, Tremblers, had managed to get lost, giving rise to the famous song we now sang to them... (music) It only took two hours, 45 minutes before we ran into the airbase to break into the circuit over the mass of parked fighters below. Dechy was a busy place, with many air forces present to participate in dissimilar air combat, It was one of the busiest airfields in Europe, with, at that time, an average of 60,000 movements a year, about 450 per day, and was something of a spotter's paradise. June in Sardinia was beautiful, and it was a delight to shed our heavy immersion suits and wear lightweight flying suits for a couple of weeks instead. We mixed with our counterparts in the Italian Air Force, the Canadians, Luftwaffe, and the Mad Dutch, to name just a few, but mainly the United States Air Force. The Italians ran the place in their own idiosyncratic way, which led to much frustration from our betters and hilarity from ourselves. Classically, we all met in the mornings for a daily briefing on the day's missions— This would often be curtailed by a senior Italian officer bearing much gold on his uniform, declaring in an imperious voice, The ranger, she are closed. The closing of the range was a continual threat to our plans to fly, and was most often due to the unserviceability of the single, aged search-and-rescue boat. Since the ACMI range was over water, this venerable launch was required to rescue anyone unfortunate enough to eject, and without the boat, nobody flew. There were a few other peculiarities that always raised a smile. You'd never get takeoff clearance until everyone in the formation had confirmed to the tower that their canopy was down and locked. Apparently someone with a bad hangover had taxied out one day and tried to depart without finishing their pre takeoff checks and left their aircraft's lid decorating the runway whilst they flew around in a convertible for a few circuits. Other delightful memories come from the ground tank boys who were often asked to sweep through their ranges to ensure they were clear of uncaring holidaymakers in boats with the call... A check and no sheeps in a bay. They would duly look around for swimming ewes. For the fighter boys it was important when bugging out of a fight not to drop a boom over the island, and we all dreaded the call from Myrtle Radar. You break out a supersonic line! At the end of a hot and sweaty day playing at fighter pilots, we would retire to the pig and tape. A bar built into the accommodation blocks by enterprising Brits and decorated by generations of pilots who had time on their hands, having suffered yet another day when uh, the Ranger, she, are closed. The walls were beautifully painted with squadron crests and cartoons, whilst various memorabilia had found its way there we shared the patio with a thousand-pound bomb that was embedded into the paving and a sidewinder sticking through one wall. If we went off base for a meal, it was usually down to Cagliari for a calzone pizza with lots of detti red, the local rough wine served from polythene half-gallon containers.' Returning to the airbase, we would be faced with a couple of 16-year-old conscripts with big guns, cigarettes and an open bottle of wine demanding for our Pesa Pasa. If we managed to regain entry, it would be down to the tri-service mess for gelato and zambuca desserts, followed by more zambuca, generally flaming and espresso. The flying was the best bit, though. Assuming the launch hadn't sunk again, we would head out to the big circular range with clean wings, no tanks to hinder us, and use up a year's worth of airframe fatigue in two weeks. My logbook shows a few 1v1s to clear away the cobwebs, and then 2v2 and 2v2v2 against F-16s, 2v2 against Eagles, then 2v2v2, eagles and F-16s. There was some Harrier and Hawk combat thrown in, and some 4v4, F-4 and Hawk, versus F-15 and F-16. Anyone who got shot, indicated by a coffin appearing around the ACMI aircraft symbol, had to do an aileron roll and then head to the edge of the range to regenerate before re-entering the fight. All good fun. All too soon the tanks were back on and we were headed back to Lucas and QRA. Within a few days I had a couple more Bear Deltas and then a bear and a badger to my name. Then it was something a bit different with us fighting and then tanking off a Hercules before heading back down to RAF Valley. This time it was a bit different, arriving in a mighty Phantom and parking away from the lines of Red and White Hawks on the pan outside the Strike Command Air-to-Air Missile Establishment. Pooping off real missiles was a regular bit of our training, and having been away from the front line for a few years, I got a chance to fire one. Although attempts were made to create some realism, launching an air-to-air missile had to be done in a boringly choreographed manner, lest some unfortunate passing airliner be the recipient of one of the RAF's most fun toys. The range filled the bite-shaped chunk missing from the west coast of Welsh Wales, named after the Welshman's national costume Cardigan Bay from an airfield near Harlech, where, according to the song, the men of Wales come from, and the more different naturist beach, where they presumably go to, the RAF would launch an Australian target drone. The Jindavik, an Aboriginal word meaning the hunted one, was powered by a Rolls-Royce Viper, which was also the engine that helped the jet provost, the ab trainer of the time, to limp along, and it was our target of choice. Once airborne out of Lambeda, the drone flew into the range and deployed a target flare on a long wire. We were vectored onto it, whereupon the flare was lit, and the Jindy flew a lazy orbit. We drove around until we got in behind at a mile and made the call. Firing. Firing. Now. We were supposed to leave gaps in our transmissions to let the range controller stop us if something odd happened, like a Boeing 737 full of holidaymakers going from Liverpool to Torremolinos Molinos to drink Watney's red barrel, happened on the scene. The trick was to do this before the flare burnt out, which would result in the missile seeking the next available heat source, the aforementioned Rolls-Royce Viper in the Jindavik. After nearly transmitting on the trigger and spoiling everything, I managed to get my left thumb and right index finger coordinated enough to make the call and fire the Sidewinder luckily we were still at the right range and after a big smoky whoosh the winder leapt across the short distance and went bang we stuck around for a few more days pooping off more ordnance whilst I helped as a photo chase and a secondary fire, and that was that back home and I was crewed up with a new navigator cool hand collie I'll explain his nickname another time, as he was yet to demonstrate his culinary capacity, but we flew together often. One such time was as we worked up for the RAF Luca's Battle of Britain flypast. The boss had volunteered us to fly a four-ship formation display on the occasion of that year's Battle of Britain celebrations. We wheeled around the sky overhead Lucas, doing our thing on a number of occasions, changing formation positions, there are only a limited number of things you can do with the foreship, and more importantly, making lots of noise. Being in the flypast was the ideal place for me. Coolhand wasn't so sure, as he was convinced I was trying to take a wingtip off, uh, because it excused me from other duties that I might otherwise be given. On an RAF base, the Battle of Britain is a special day, during which it celebrates its most important victory in battle and welcomes local dignitaries to enjoy it with them. Lords and ladies, mayors and mayresses, the well-heeled and influential politicians and notables, luminaries and public figures, pillars of society and personalities, big kahunas and large enchiladas are all invited to a cocktail party at the end of which there is a fly-past. What looks to most like a pleasant gathering is in fact an event coordinated with exquisite precision. The junior officers are briefed and prepared so that as a couple arrive, they discreetly have their invitation checked and are passed on to an usher who is given their names. The usher takes their coats and brings them forward to a hosting officer, who already has their details, including a short background brief, and whose job it is to keep them well supplied with champagne cocktails whilst manoeuvring them around a large anteroom. In the room are all the other local hoity-toity and the station's senior officers and other halves. They are positioned in several circles, and the hosting officer is supposed to bring them to a group introduce them to all there and feed them drinks for let's say 15 minutes. Then they discreetly move them on to the next group so that for the two hours they're there they are moved on through every circle and get to meet all the RAF bigwigs present. All well and good but some hosts have trouble remembering their own names let alone other people's. I was and still am, almost completely name-blind. I had no problem remembering people's jobs, the station commander, OC admin wing, OC engineering wing, but their names? The harder I tried, the more flustered I would become, and the less likely to recall anything. I was, and still am, so inept that I married my lovely wife, thingamajig, specifically so that when we arrived at someone's door for a dinner party, she could remind me of our hosts' names. And apart from that, I preferred fly.
3: It was lovely meeting
4: um, again, uh, your thingamajig. <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> yes, I know uh, what's your name. Um yeah, uh, uh I think the lord uh, that you know we've got such words as mate and chum and mm-hmm. Uh, all and those you? Kind of things <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly but unfortunately in the formal ways of introduction you can't say yeah, hey, mate i'd like you to meet this bloke
3: <laughs> uh, that's i always dread being in public um, forums or situations and i'm sitting there thinking oh, i know that this person's walking up i'm i'm going to have to introduce this person to this person and i don't remember what this person's name is so why don't don't. you two introduce each other
4: (laughs) yeah exactly uh yeah uh but uh you know from oscar training school onwards we were taught the proper way of introductions you know uh ladies to uh gentlemen uh senior uh, or junior to senior Senior. uh so you know um it was it was all very it had to be done properly it mm-hmm. definitely had to be done properly of course yes. so i uh, yeah i think when they they learned that i was useless uh, they found other <laughs> jobs for me <laughs>
3: keep keep uh, anderson out of the uh, the public eye
4: exactly Yeah. yeah worked for me
3: lots of great i mean there's so many things you talked about on on this uh, installment of your uh 414 form 14 um uh, i don't know where to start um so, so many amazing experiences you had, I especially like the taking off with uh, i guess the um a canopy not locked at what point would it <laughs> yeah. at what point would the would the wind stream uh catch the catch the well, am guessing, rip
4: it off? i don't know but uh, it depends on the aircraft because uh, some aircraft had um canopies that weren't actually driven uh very hmm. um strongly. Uh, so they would flip off at a moment's notice. You I probably, probably noticed thought.
3: before you got <laughs> too far down the runway, right?
4: <laughs> well, you, the trouble is you do accelerate quite quickly. So, no, uh, you know, you you might not. Know, and there's so much noise, you might not even notice the wind noise.
0: Mm.
4: Uh, I mean, I've sat on an airliner and um, the canopy, the cockpit seal of the opening window beside you um, might not be quite sealing properly. And you're, you're hammering down the runway in an mm-hmm. A340 and you're thinking, that's an awful lot of noise from this window. I wonder if it's shut properly. <laughs> I know, I've done that. Like, yeah. ah, you know, you're yelling out the uh,
3: the speeds and the you know 80 knots, huh? What'd you say? <laughs> yeah. Just give them a thumbs up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then hopefully yeah, the yeah. pressurization kicks in and starts sealing all those uh, bad all those leaky
4: badly gaps sealed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, good stuff. Members. Thank
3: Thanks. you again for. Uh, for the uh, Plain Tales uh, Form Fourteen installment. No problem. All right.
4: So we got
0: about 10 we got about ten, 10 to
3: yet. fifteen minutes whatever left. Like Liz is telling me so. Whatever I feel like doing. Well, you mean in regards to the show? I, I think
0: that's what she means. That's okay. Correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do not misinterpret.
3: I am not misinterpreting. Thank you. Um, let's see. Let's I say guess number seven. Number seven, Maybe. okay, uh, a phantom in Tim Van Ram. Oh, yeah, keeping with the the whole uh, continuity of the uh, F4 Phantom. Uh, this is from Tim Van Ram. I think he was with us earlier. I'm assuming he's still with us in our live audience. Uh, he says, I ran across this uh, worthy GoFundMe site that is raising funds to save this great F4S Phantom 2 from a scrap heap. The folks behind the project want to relocate it from Arizona to the former Castle Air Force Base in Central California. I think it's Merced, California, to the wonderful United States Air Force Museum that's housed there. I thought APG folks might be willing to send a buck or two to help with this fine effort and at the very least be made aware, for, made aware of it. Thanks for sharing. Best, Tim Van Ram. And the article um, is... Uh, well, it's from GoFundMe, and uh, so it's not really an article. And uh, Craig Cook has uh, started this fundraising campaign, Help Save the Bunny Phantom. And so far, they've raised $2,425 out of uh, the goal of 10000 i And uh, I'm, he says, I'm raising money to benefit Castle Air Museum and any donation will help make an impact thanks in advance for your contribu- contribution to this cause that means so much to me and to anyone who appreciates our proud history of military aviation uh let's see now i think i have um that uh, slide liz can you put that up yes, there you the do. the Stand bunny up. fountain well i had it all already queued up oh you did i'm sorry you did sorry okay you there you go there it is um, F4S Phantom two, uh, build number 155539, I uh, may have added an extra five in there, was last flown on May 2nd, 1986, when it left its home at NAS Point Magoo in Southern California and flew to its new home in the Arizona desert at Davis monthan Air Force Base near Tucson. It's been preserved there for the past 36 years, but will be sent to the scrap pile to be destroyed unless the museum raises $50,000 to prepare the plane for release from the boneyard and transportation to Castle Air Museum in Atwater, California. Uh, they're looking for a pilot too, Nick. Uh, so you might want to uh,
4: contact <laughs> no, them. not in your life. Down <laughs> that's an old Navy bucket of bolts. So that'll be, that'll be corroded through. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm still trying to work out why Castle Air Force Base. I don't know. To pay money to get a Navy airplane there.
3: That is a good question. Yeah, they yeah. must have bumped their heads or something. Um let's see. let's see for the purpose of this particular effort, we are asking you uh your help uh, or asking you to help us reach a minimum of ten thousand dollars or twenty percent of the required amount. More would be great, but anything helps uh Castle Air Museum is one of the largest outdoor military aviation museums. I guess it's a equal opportunity employer um for different yeah. services uh yeah. has the infrastructure in place specifically for this aircraft. Please make your donation to preserve the last of VX-4 evaluators, F-4 Phantoms. This unit played a crucial role in the effective operation of Navy and Marine aviation units, as it was VX-4 that tested and evaluated new aircraft, weapon systems, hardware, software, including needed updates in the development of recommended combat tactics for new systems. This is literally that last of these particular aircraft, and their place in aviation history cannot be overstated. So anyway, uh, we'll have a link to Brilliant. that. Brilliant. If I'll
4: you tell you what, I interested. would fly if they put a bunny in the back for me.
3: Oh, <laughs> they could probably do that. Oh, mm. oh you mean I like, oh, like I'm thinking of a stuffed animal, but you're talking about a different type of bunny.
4: <laughs> ah, well, I I wasn't going to comment, actually, on account of the <laughs> fact that you you actually came remarkably close to my desires.
3: Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> he says that to me all the time. Okay. Um, Number hmm. 10, Jeff. Number 10. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, we have some audio feedback from James Cole. And uh, so let's uh, see what he has to say.
7: Hello, APG crew. This is James, codenamed VH Pilot, from sunny Southern California, more specifically near Victorville, where... There is a Boeing 727 that is on private land adjacent to the Victorville, Southern California Logistics Airport, KVCV. And it has a registration number that can still be read, November 518 DA. Now, Captain Jeff, I wondered if you had any time in this aircraft, going back to your early Acme Airline days. I've attached a photo of this aircraft, how it looks today. I hope none of the airplanes you've flown recently look like this. Obviously, it's seen much better days and has been mostly scrapped. However, it leads me to a question. How does an airline pilot keep track of the time that they fly? I know as a private pilot, I keep track in a paper log, but that would be very tedious for all the legs that you fly in a given week or month. How do you keep track of time, and how would you know if you ever flew this aircraft? Would you have to go back to your old logs? Love the show. Love Plain Tales. Love Dr. Steph's input and insight into being a jumper-dumper. At Miami-Rick, I have a clear view of the skies over the San Gabriel and San Bernardino Mountains of all of the jets approaching the Ontario and Los Angeles airspace from the east. And on departure, many cargo jets fly directly overhead as they're climbing out to destinations like Rockford, Illinois, the major cargo hub. Anyway, if you see a guy down there waving at you, walking two dogs along the Mojave River, that would be me. Clear skies, tailwinds, and all that jazz. Catch you guys later. Thank you, James. Great quality audio,
3: by the way. Uh, I can tell that he knows something about... uh recording audio um he said uh, hello apg crew please find the audio feedback attached okay that we just played uh the 727 that uh, liz showed on the uh, on the on the video here of the uh boeing uh 727 november 518 delta alpha and uh, that's at victorville airport the southern california logistics airport and he asked us, uh, oh, he said this photo was taken by his daughter, uh, who happens to be a San Bernardino County sheriff deputy, uh, which explains the patrol car Oh, that you see in the foreground there. Uh, by the way, there are many photos online of this aircraft that when it was in service, but I didn't include them due to copyright concerns. Well, thanks. Well, we don't worry about it, though. <laughs> um, now we do. Actually, you know, Nick really does. Thank you, Nick, for <laughs> tr- attempting to keep us out of trouble. Um, yeah. So so to answer your question first, uh, I'm sure that I have flown that particular airframe several times uh, because I just recognized the tail number, 518 uh, Delta Alpha. Um, and then he asked, how do we, as airline pilots, keep track of our time? There are some... I'd say a minority of airline pilots that actually continue to use logbooks and write down their tail numbers and flying time and any other remarks. I kind of wish that over my 33 years of of airline flying that I had done that as well, uh, because that would have you know jogged my memory and I would have been able to do audio uh, things like uh, Nick does with his uh, form 14. Form four fourteen. There we go. Um, His logbook entries, and uh, which is definitely um, a source for for um, kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like making him remember, uh, reminiscing. It's a good
4: trigger, a trigger, yeah, trigger for for memories. Because even though I've only written bare bones details, once mm -hmm. I I can bring take myself back to a trip now without any problem. I can't do that
3: because I didn't take the time to d- to record things manually. Uh, we uh, at uh, Acme have a computer system that keeps track of all of our, except for that my very first year when I was a flight engineer, um, everything was done manually. Uh, but we still had records that uh, we could download uh, from the company, and uh, so when I go every six months to fill out my application for my class um, A. Class 1 medical certificate, I go to a page on our company's um, computer and I say and I pull up the the recent flying uh, time and stuff it's all there. It's kept track of by the computers. and I did uh, early on for several years kind of make printouts of all my trips with all the flight times and the tail numbers and everything else. I guess I could probably go back and uh i think i did that for maybe 4 or 5 years uh, i could probably go back and and research it and see if i could find that tail number somewhere but uh yeah but i i don't um i don't think that would be an easy task so um but that's the way at least you know once i got hired by an airline i figured yeah i made it i'm i'm not going to worry about keeping a logbook because the 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 company computers kind of take care of all
6: that stuff so um so, I was looking at that picture. If you could put that picture back up for a second, Captain Jeff,
0: mm-hmm.
6: I'm I'm looking at this picture and I'm thinking, man, that airplane looks pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Imagine imagine being Captain Jeff, and that's the youngest of the four airplanes that you've flown. That's retired.
0: Mm. <laughs> Wonder Wait what the oldest minute. looks
6: like.
3: <laughs> oh, I see. Of the yeah, but I mean, okay. If you but if you consider that I. I I did fly the Mad Dog. I think that would be younger. I think you mean this this particular model or this particular airframe of the seven twenty sevens is one of the youngest yeah, yeah, ones. Yeah. I, ah, okay. Yeah, you're right. And uh, honestly, I hate to admit it, but uh, that was after one of my my landings, um, <laughs> and that's why the wings are gone and the and the the tail is falling off. Yeah and the engines too (laughs) yeah oh yeah. yeah it was not a particularly good uh landing that day yeah it's sad isn't it looking at the shape that things in
6: i uh yeah i mean I, i get knocking off the two side engines but man knocking that middle engine out of the tail must uh Really, been an impressive landing. It was. It was a very (laughs) firm landing.
4: (laughs) I must admit, you know, looking at that uh, trooper's car, that uh, sheriff's car, um, it looks so looks so modern in comparison that it looks like something out of a science fiction movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That was a great airplane, though. I really do miss flying the seven two. And and any of those folks listening to the show who uh, had the opportunity to be a crew member on it, I think would agree with me uh, that it was a it was a fantastic. Even even a flight cabin crew, um, you know, most of the people that I still fly with uh, every now and then who were back in the you know flying in the nineties and the early two thousands uh, will will tell you that uh, they they really loved the airplane as well. So. Anywho, so I guess uh, hopefully that answers your question, James. And, um, yeah, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. I know we didn't cover everything that we had hoped to today. And, um, and please, it's a little bit uh, Liz. Yeah, it will. Yeah, I'm happy. She's happy. She's going, woohoo, in the background. Not really so <laughs> not yeehaw, making that up. Not
0: because I'm not allowed to do
3: that. Uh, you're not allowed to do a yeehaw. Well, you're- Canadians are kind of cowboys, too. Yeah, you can do the yeehaw. Oh. I, I, should I should I play my my new uh, yeehaw? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, where is it? Um, you uh, bunch
4: of cowboys! Yeah, uh, here we go. Yeehaw!
3: <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, it's going to be a little bit shorter show than normal because I'm kind of being pressed up against the time. I need to kind of get some things together and. Uh, head down to Roswell so I can uh, rehearse and sing for uh, church this afternoon. And uh, let's see. So before we um, leave you, let's tell you a little bit about our website, airlinepilotguy.com. Several things there on the site. We have information about our our crew here. Oh, by the way, Nick, I need to get some information from you so we can update our site. And, yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, the community, not you, not the other Nick.
4: <laughs> Nick's, oh, okay. Nick's well, seat. mine's out of date as well.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I think you know what? I, sh- I should probably look at all of them because I could probably yeah. do <laughs> some updating yeah, as well.
4: And scrap <laughs> it and start yeah. it. to I- <laughs> mine, I haven't retired
3: yet. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe we should just like eliminate that whole page.
0: <laughs> and uh, uh,
3: it's a good page. Yeah, it is a good page. Okay. Uh, and you can learn about, as I said, the crew, the community. Uh, we have a community calendar. We have uh, the APG library, and uh, where if you uh, read those things called books, um, our our librarian in Buffalo, uh, Tiffany, uh, takes care of that for us. Thank you, Tiffany. Um, Merchandise, if you want a t shirt with some APG logo stuff on it, uh, check that out. And uh, we have a separate Plain Tales page for uh, more detailed information about each week's installment and the coffee fund uh, information on how you can join the coffee fund cadre or the coffee bar club also we're on s- the social media social media and uh who wants to give that one a shot i guess it's going to be you nick c because nick uh, oh captain i'm here nick- i'll do it <laughs> okay okay uh, go ahead captain nick
4: okay well if you uh, want to go under the page. Face Plant page, um, we're an uh, airline pilot guy. So, f- Facebook uh, forward slash airline pilot guy. Uh, on Twitter, uh, just look at or just give us an at APG crew. And very similar on uh, the grams, the instas, uh, APG crew. Uh, and uh, then, of course, there's the special, uh, just for us, organized um, Slack for all the Slackers out there. Yes, if you're a slacker, you'll
3: be right at home here. Let's see if uh, Hillel is back with me here in the cabin. Uh, Hey, Hillel. Hillel, do you you have time to do do some slack?
8: Jeff, this is my private time. Would you let me finish a poo for once?
3: Sorry. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to have to uh, add it in post, apparently. Uh, So let's just pretend we're doing that now.
8: APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation that's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack.
3: Thanks, Hillel. Make sure you turn the fan on.
0: Can you get me a roll of toilet paper?
4: Yeah, hang on. I'd throw <laughs> it to him if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> And
3: uh, let's see, we also want to thank, of course, our producer-director, Liz. Great. Well done, Liz. In Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thanks for everything, Liz. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless.
4: Bye, everybody.
0: Cheers.
6: Bye.
1: Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats
0: Airline pilot guy I fly fly a major oh! Airline pilot guy He can't
1: land in heavy fall oh! I got no friends cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. But I can land this old
7: plane. I can land it just
0: fine. Airline, not a guy. I fly home.